An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to be talking about a topic that I think is central to ceremonial magic in specific. There's a lot of different branches of magic and a lot of different traditions. And this particular topic, uh, I would argue, has some of the longest-running historical context. There's a lot of information about it spanning back, I mean, hundreds of years um, and I know a lot of religions will make uh, claims which often go unsubstantiated with archaeological evidence uh, that their tradition goes back as far as they make the claim. That's a pretty common thing that we see in, I would argue, most of theology, not just in the occult. But in this particular case, there's a lot of verifiable evidence that would hold up to scrutiny. And it, it kind of has made its way into the mainstream of multiple religions because of that. It's very uh, long-running. Now, um, I wouldn't say that it's as old in its current form as like something like astrology. We know that the symbols of the zodiac and the traditions that were measuring the stars in that way were, I'm, I mean go back to Babylonian and Sumerian times and, and I wouldn't I wouldn't make the claim that in particular this topic goes back quite that far although aspects of it probably do go back into that kind of a range but but I would make the claim that uh, it seems to at least go back to an oral tradition which is first written down around the first century uh, common era so it's a very, very old tradition. And because of that, uh, it has made its way into a lot of different practices. And, and I think a lot of people will uh, recognize aspects of it in various traditions. So what we're going to be talking about today is the Kabbalah. Uh, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Um, Kabbalah outside of the Tree of Life. We're going to kind of just dive in a little bit into the specifics of it. And... Uh, one thing that I want to that I want to say about the Kabbalah at this stage is that sometimes it kind of gets a weird reputation when it comes to magic in general because a lot of occultists will at least go through a phase, if not spend their entire practice, where they have a little bit of an aversion to like mainstream religion. And I think some of that comes from a pretty legitimate source. I think a lot of us end up down this road because we do feel uh, mistreated by certain individuals and um, those individuals might uh, get, I don't know, like support or backing from in, in certain cases, depending on the church, of course, um, you know, mainstream religion at large. And that can kind of put a sour taste in your mouth if... Uh, you're often mistreated uh, by individuals based on those those types of parameters. Um, 
And the Kabbalah kind of gets a weird rep because of that. Because a lot of times people have an aversion to studying anything, especially if it's down the Abrahamic route, if they are occultist practicing in the United States. Um, I, I don't really have a whole lot of insight as to what it's like in the world at large. Um, I imagine that most countries that are that the, the main source of religion is the Abrahamic traditions. I imagine that it's pretty similar uh, because I know a lot of those uh, tendencies and tenets have, have been passed between, between cultures. So I would imagine that that might be case, the case, you know, for a lot of European countries, definitely for the UK. Um, I would imagine that that might be the case for a lot of the Middle East as well. Although I would say that the Arabic systems do have a little bit more of, um, of like a history of like astro astrology and those kind of things. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of uh, the version might be in a different way, but I know that, I mean, there's, there's literally countries that will put you to death for this kind of stuff. And, um, so I know there is, there's, there's a lot of aversion, at least in the community that I witness on a, on a regular basis. And when, when I get into certain circles where people know a lot about the history of things, I don't see as much of that aversion. I think that a lot of people end up, um, kind of leaving it at the wayside as they advance, you know, as they grow through certain levels. But there are entire communities of the occult that basically want nothing to do with anything that has Abrahamic origins. And the Kabbalah is definitely one of those things where you can make a pretty solid argument that it has Abrahamic origins. Um, it's very closely related to Judaism. I would argue that they're not the ones who originally invented some of the ideas that are in it. And I would also argue that the way that we utilize it today is not quite how they use it either today or in or throughout history. So you can make you can make some different arguments, whether that's, um, you know, they're not the first to do these kind of things with their alphabet and with um, uh, assigning symbols to different things which we'll, we're going to go very in-depth into. Um, but I would also make, you know, I would I would definitely say what we're doing now with these particular things is pretty far from what they were doing with it originally or what they're doing today. But, of course, I kind of come from a standpoint that if you're getting something out of your religion and it's helping you be a better person to the people around you, then I support you in doing that. You know, if it... I, I, I do get a lot out of my system and I, and I hope that other people experiment with it enough to have like an educated viewpoint on it. But at the end of the day, if, uh, you know, if you're coming from that other tradition, there's no reason why I can't respect that tradition enough to, to learn a little bit from it and to open my mind to the way that somebody else goes about their spiritual experience. And I think that that's especially true, uh, with the Abrahamic religions because, um, especially for occultists, uh, we, we tend to, and I know I went through several phases in my life where I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about it. I know I was a little more, more defensive towards that one direction. I was a little bit more open towards things that were, I don't know, like of Eastern origin, for example, because there seems to be a more esoteric side to it. Whereas modern day, uh, there's not as much esoteric side to some of the Abrahamic traditions. But that brings up the very first talking point that I wanted to get into, 
which is that the the Kabbalah as it was originally um, practiced and taught was the esoteric side of Judaism and still kind of stands as the esoteric side of Judaism in a modern era. Um, now, if we're going to be having this conversation, especially if I don't uh, get to do what I like to do when I'm giving presentations in person, I don't get to have like slides and, and show you pictures and those kind of things to help clarify some of the more difficult uh, things that I might like to, I don't know, talk about. Um, I think it's really important that we talk a little bit about the spelling of Kabbalah and how that relates to different forms of Kabbalah. So Kabbalah, it, you'll see it online and written in books a lot with multiple spellings. And nowadays, uh, those spellings are describing slightly different things. Now, I don't know that that's something that was originally in the very beginning. They were like, hey, this group is going to just change the first letter, and now we're talking about something else that's very similar. I don't, I don't know that that's really where the origin of the different spellings came from, but in a modern era, it is pretty much like clockwork that uh, the different spellings do describe different things. So Kabbalah with a K, Kabbalah spelled K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H, represents kind of the just uh, the Jewish mysticism side of it. That's going to be like the study of Jewish scripture. Um, it's going to be heavily tied into some um, some requirements for the for the for the Jewish individual to kind of meet before uh, engaging with the Kabbalah. And now I'm going to make some general claims about what some of those requirements are obviously there are many different branches of Judaism and some of them might not have some of the same restrictions on who is, um, I wouldn't say qualified, but who is recommended to study the uh, Kabbalah. Um, in general, they would say that it's kind of forbidden for most people until they reach a certain age. Usually that age is between like 35 to 40. Some traditions are even older and that's generally uh, reserved for men to to study. Um, usually they suggest that you have certain things ready in your life before you start to engage with the esoteric side of Judaism. So one of the qualifiers would be somebody that's married and, uh, you know, kind of stable in their life, whether that's stable in their career, maybe you own your own home, uh, maybe you already have uh, given birth to some kids and you've got your family, you know, on lockdown. And they, they usually suggest that because um, the, the belief is that the study of Kabbalah and the experience, the esoteric experiences that, uh, come from that can be disruptive in a way where, because you're experimenting with such intense forces, if you don't have a firm footing in your life, it can be disruptive towards certain stages of growth. And so they usually don't suggest studying it until that that point in your life. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that we don't believe that it could that it is potent enough to cause disruptions in your life when we look at more the occult side of it. But I would say that um, it's it's open to whoever chooses to study it. When you look at the non-Jewish side, you know, if you make the determination for yourself, then it's kind of up to you to be playing with those forces. So the other main spelling is Kabbalah with a Q. 
So it's Q-A-B-A-L-A-H. Usually, sometimes they double up the B, uh, similar to how the B is doubled up in Kabbalah with a K. But usually there's only one B when you're spelling it with a Q. And that's representing a different side of this thing, right? That's, that's describing the hermetic side, you know, as, as Kabbalah overlaps with hermeticism, you know, dealing with uh, elemental planetary forces, those types of things getting drawn out of it. And, and definitely the, the style of writing that we would use if, when we're describing the occult side of it. And that became really popular in Renaissance Europe. And that makes a lot of sense because a lot of the ceremonial magic um, tradition was spawned through Renaissance Europe's alchemical studies, the hermetic side of, you know, those kinds of things. Um, it makes sense. And it mostly is, gets derived from ancient manuscripts on magic. Um, I would say that in a modern era, the way that we practice it now, it was very popularized by the Golden Dawn. They were a highly influential group. Uh, during the late 1800s to early 1900s. And uh, it was also very popularized by Crowley. Um, Aleister Crowley was a member of the Golden Dawn, but then when he when the Golden Dawn dissolved and he left, um, there was a lot of uh, information that he had taken learning from the Golden Dawn tradition that he put into um, Thelema and the mystery schools that he had spawned, the OTO, the AA, as, as well as just his general writings and stuff like that. So I'd say a lot of the way that it's practiced is both popularized by the Golden Dawn and by Aleister Crowley. And there's some other major influential characters as well, but I think that's, that's most of them can go through that, uh, that period of time and get connected into uh, kind of that angle of it. And usually speaking... Again, there's many, many traditions of Judaism, um, but usually uh, Kabbalah with a Q is, is something that uh, the Jewish community doesn't look very kindly upon. Uh, it's, it's usually kind of considered to be, I don't know that bastardization is the right word, but it, it's definitely like a, like we've taken something that is uh, pure and true and sacred and like added different concepts to it that now morph it into something else. And sometimes they do consider it, depending on the community, to even be evil, that it's like something that you should stay away from. If you're studying Kabbalah with a K, uh, then Kabbalah with a Q might be something that's viewed actually in a negative light as being like we've taken it away from its original source. And then the last spelling that I do see, and it's not really, really common. I've never found it without looking for it directly. If you go out and just look up Kabbalah on the internet and you're just like, you know, clicking on random links until you find the information that you're looking for or you go to your local library or you go to a bookstore and you start pulling thing, anything that says Kabbalah off the shelf or any book that has Kabbalah written in it, you're really not going to see this one a lot. It is out there if you specifically go looking for it. It's Kabbalah spelled with a C. So C-A-B-A-L-A-H. And that represents the more... Uh, Christian side of Kabbalah. So taking Kabbalah with a K, the Jewish mysticism side of Kabbalah, and using it for similar reasons that they would Kabbalah with a K. So Kabbalah with a K was often used for dissecting scripture, expanding on the Torah, and other spiritual texts, and digging into the deeper meanings uh, where certain words relate to other words or certain ideas relate to other ideas. 
similar concept. So as individuals uh, moved from Judaism to Christianity, and as Christians tried to do a deeper dive back to their roots, uh, there's this um, interesting stage where uh, the Christian community starts to mess with uh, Kabbalah to dig deeper into the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. It's not an incredibly popular practice in either the occult or mainstream religion. and um, But it is out there, and so you will sometimes run into it. Just kind of be aware of that separation, I think. When, when it comes to this particular branch of thought uh, as it relates to the occult, and as it relates to religious history, I would argue that most of what we're going to be talking about is either Jewish Kabbalah or Hermetic Kabbalah. So I'll try throughout as much as possible throughout this podcast to distinguish which one I'm talking about, to, to uh, say either Jewish Kabbalah or Hermetic Kabbalah. But if you're, you know, if you're reading up on the topic, be prepared to see it spelled with a K or a Q and very rarely with a C. And that those are all kind of describing slightly different things. So uh, we talk about Jewish Kabbalah because it, it is the basic structure on which a lot of this thing is uh, oriented. It's why the letters are where they are on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. It's, it's why many of them are uh, associated with some of the things that they're associated with. And it lays down kind of a foundation which we end up building Hermetic Kabbalah off of. So... Hermetic Kabbalah is more about association to various energies, you know, the elements, planets, and horoscopes. Not to say that Jewish Kabbalah did not associate to a lot of these things, but we do it in a slightly different way that's very much inspired by the original method, but uh, expands in a different direction. And one of the ways that uh, Hermetic Kabbalah gets described uh, is the great filing cabinet. Uh, it was Crowley that uh, described it as a great filing cabinet. And, it, and it, it really does a great job of doing that, of taking like all these various different symbols and systems and energies and, and kind of putting it into a framework that can be used for other stuff. So that kind of defines where the conversation is going to go as we, as we work through, through this. Now, I would say that um, Chaos Magic in general seems to have a little bit of an aversion to Kabbalah, for that exact reason, the the idea that that um, in, in chaos magic a lot of it is about expanding out your own new symbols and kind of breaking out of the paradigm that already exists. And with Kabbalah, a lot of times it's about seeing how much you can fit into this filing cabinet. So it's kind of an opposite goal in some ways, and it definitely gets uh, viewed in that way. I would not make a claim that no chaos magician is working with it, but I would say that a lot of prominent authors um, either stay away from it entirely or try not to overly use it in a way that um, is so rigid that it forces the practice down a familiar pattern. And that just kind of has to do with uh, some of the tradition and how that works. Um, definitely a, a valid way of going about things. I wouldn't say that um, that their system is invalid because they don't use Kabbalah. I would just say this system is also very valid um, and serves an incredibly important purpose when you look at ceremonial magic as a whole. So let's look at like the actual history of Kabbalah. 
a lot of it's going to come back to Jewish scripture. So I wanted to reference two major sources. The Zohar is the main Kabbalistic text as it's practiced in Judaism now. Um, Zohar was originally written in Spain around like 1280, somewhere in that range. Um, multiple authors have taken part in it, but one of the major ones was Moses de Leon. And the it, it, it acts as like a, like a commentary on the Torah. Um, it includes a lot of different books. I don't remember this entire number. I think there's like seven of them. But the ones that get used the most in the discussion that relates over to the occult side of it are um, the Book of Concealment, the Greater Holy Assembly, and the Lesser Holy Assembly. Those are the first three uh, books within the Zohar. Um, if you want to see translations of those into English, uh, Samuel Mathers, the one of the two founding members of the Golden Dawn, uh, he translated them in his book, Kabbalah Unveiled, and he also wrote commentary on them in the in the notation section as he was translating them. So it's a, it's a fantastic route to go if you're kind of looking down this side of it, or if you just want to see, you know, translated into English some of those books. So book of uh, the Book of Concealment, it's a really, really short paper. It's only six pages long, and it contains a commentary to the first six chapters of Genesis. It's very, very obscure, and it cites no authorities and explains basically nothing. It just kind of like sets this framework. And then the Greater Assembly uh, explains the previous, so it explains the Book of Concealment. Um, basically, some characters get together and discuss the secrets of the Kabbalah, and then uh, after opening the discussion, uh, each one of the sages that are having the discussion rise up one after the other and lecture on a secret of divinity. And then um, Ben Yokai, being one of the main characters in that, it, referencing a, an actual individual, um, he, each one of the sages come up and then he responds to their interpretations. And then each one of them steadily become more aesthetic until three of them die um it's it's an interesting it's an interesting read for sure and uh some people have called it architecturally perfect being like very reminiscent of the meaning and and tying into a lot of the concepts the lesser assembly um is it, throughout that, basically, Ben Yukai dies, and a speech is quoted in which he explains the Greater Assembly. So, Book of Concealment, six pages long, then the Greater Assembly comments on that in depth in a narrative, and then Lesser Assembly comments on the Greater uh, Assembly. Um, they're they're definitely worth reading if you're diving down the the Jewish side of things. I don't think that that gets referenced a whole lot in the occult. Um, obviously. You know, Mathers definitely was familiar with it. And as we said already, um, Mathers and the Golden Dawn act as a one of the primary forces which made this a very prominent practice. But I think that a lot more of it comes from this other text, which is called the Sefer Yetzirah. So the Sefer Yetzirah is a book that gets referenced as early as the first century. So we know it was, it was probably in some form written in the first century. But we don't see direct quotations of it in other writings until about the 6th century. So it's hard to say how accurate uh, our version, our modern day version is to that uh, original version. 
Um, and then by the 10th century, Kabbalah is actively practiced in Judaism. And there's entire commentaries which start to get written on the Sefer Yetzirah. Um, so we know that a lot of the ideas that were in the Sefer Yetzirah were, were passed down orally before they were written down. So there was a, a living tradition wrapped into these ideas. But as far as like where its original source is, it's kind of lost to time. There's definitely biblical references uh, and then some of the analyzation of those references were probably passed via word of mouth for many centuries before the book gets referenced uh, to have existed in the first place. Um, so that's going to act as one of the major inspirations of how we practice uh, Kabbalah today, like the hermetic side of that. Um, there's a couple of different individuals. I'm going to go really fast throughout these. Some of these will come up later, but I just kind of wanted to lay a little bit of a framework because a lot of this gets expanded on uh, around the 15th century, 16th century. And that's where we get like a lot of, um, you know, these manuscripts that go over specific associations of different things. And um, I wanted to just really briefly talk a little bit about that. So there was an individual in the 15th century named Giovanni Picca di Mirandola. And he was going about trying to unify a lot of the concepts of Platonism, Neoplatonism, Aristotleism, Hermeticism, and Jewish Kabbalah. He himself was a practicing Christian. Um, like we said, kind of, you know, going back to his roots and trying to uh, unify a lot of these concepts. And he lays out some of the framework for Kabbalah with a C, the Christian side of Kabbalah. But he also was in this process of unifying, you know, the Hermetic side and the Jewish side, as well as several other points. So we know by the time he pops up, there's already a rich tradition of it. But he writes some of the oldest texts that we have, like, access to, if that makes sense. A little bit later, we have a very influential member on the Jewish Kabbalah side um, named Isaac Luria. Now, Isaac Luria uh, sometimes holds the, the title the, the Ari, and he's usually described as like one of the most notable uh, Jewish Kabbalists. Um, he's the father of what's called Lurianic Kabbalah, Lurianic stemming from his last name Luria. He shows up in the 16th century and lays the framework for what's called the Ari Arrangement, sometimes also known as the uh, Lurianic Tree. So he was uh, teaching students at a, at a Kabbalistic mystery school. Um, he had more of an academic side of it, where they were just teaching students, but then he also had an initiatory side where the initiations were towards the secret knowledge that was down this road. And it included things like his formulas for invocation and conjurations of these forces and those kinds of things. And a lot of his work is lost, unfortunately, because he communicated, they say that he communicated it all spontaneously by word of mouth, that he literally was like, okay, I'm going to give a, an essay that I'm not prepared for at 3 PM today. Let's go talk about this one idea that I've been wrestling with or uh, fleshing out. Uh, and he would just spontaneously without, you know, without preparation 
give these long form, several hour long speeches about the importance of this scripture or that scripture or analyzing in this way or that way. And uh, because of that, he never wrote any of it down. And so we know that he was incredibly influential from some of the people that went to those schools uh, where they would uh, write down from memory, you know, like they would leave the lecture hall and go to their chambers and be like, oh, man, he talked about all this really great stuff. And here's what I remember from the speech. And so we, we know a lot of his stuff via that. Uh, and then some of the later students also became prominent Kabbalists uh, where, you know, we're able to kind of piece together some of the stuff that he was teaching. Unfortunately, I, I I do wish that there was a little bit more information about him, and I really wish that somebody was literally transcribing word for word what he was saying at the time, because I think that would really benefit at least my own study, if not other people's. Um, yeah. So after him, uh, eventually we get uh, Henry Cornelius Agrippa, or Henricus Cornelius Agrippa, Um. Cornelius Agrippa wrote um, three books on occult philosophy. It's it's actually usually bundled together as one book titled Three Books of Occult Philosophy. Uh, that was written in 1533. And a lot of his work does inspire later uh, Hermetic Kabbalah work. But one of the great criticisms of his work is that he focuses so much on angelic and holy aspects and then disregards a lot of other things. So if you talk about like sigils and seals of angels, you're going to get a lot of work relating back to his work or at least inspired by his work a lot of times. Um, but when it comes to like, I don't know, just some of the more generalized stuff that you can do with the Kabbalah, he doesn't, he doesn't do a whole lot there. He was one of the first to start publishing like tables where he breaks down like the entire horoscopes and planetary and uh, elemental forces and then associates each one of those to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then associates each one of those to a sigil and then associates each one of those to a Greek letter. Um, he, he even goes as far as like, uh, like for example, Crowley in 777 and other Kabbalistic writings. Um, Crowley has some tables that have to do with like geomancy and relating geomancy over to, you know, certain signs. Um, he, he, he definitely falls into that category of having uh, founded a lot of the, the idea of breaking all this down into tables. We don't use a lot of his work as it was written. Um, like, for example, in a modern era, we wouldn't associate... Um, okay, so I have a table in front of me. I'll just pick one. So, like, Taurus... Uh, he associates it with Zion, which is uh, one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we wouldn't associate Taurus with Zion. We would associate Taurus with a different letter of the alphabet. We would associate it with Vav. Um, so there's some stuff like that throughout it, where in a modern era, we would we would interpret a little bit differently. But he definitely lays a framework for interpreting the Kabbalistic Tree of Life in that type of an occult uh, way. And so he's definitely a very... Inf and he... His work very much influences later members uh, like Mathers and Crowley. Um, okay, so moving on to the next person. The next person uh, that was incredibly foundational in this work is uh, Athanasios Kircher. Now, Kircher, he was around in like 1652-ish era. 1652 is where he starts publishing a couple of works. Um, he brings in concepts of Greek Orpheism and Egyptian mythology and ties them together through the lens that is the Kabbalah. Now, 
His work is incredibly inspirational towards our system because he, his association of which letter goes on which path of the Kabbalistic tree is um, the same arrangement that we use today. So I, I would argue that he's definitely one of the more influential members. I would say, though, uh, so he wrote a book called uh, Oedipus Egypticus. And... Um, he talks about assigning like uh, different Egyptian deities and things like that into the system. But part of the problem was prior to the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, um, we hadn't fully cracked the Egyptian hieroglyphic language system. And so we didn't, we, we knew that there were ancient Egyptians and we had a lot of pictures of their mythology and we had pieced together some ideas of what their mythology was, but it wasn't until after the Rosetta Stone that we knew for certain what their myths were because that had been lost to time. And so Kircher, unfortunately, comes up in an era where um, he's running on a lot of misconceptions of Egyptian uh, symbolism. And uh, it's, it's just a, a, it's not a product of you know, a lack of education on his part, so much it is a lack of understanding on the entire understanding of his time period towards those myths. So I would say that that's definitely one thing to be aware of if you start looking at Kircher's work. And another thing that I would say is that uh, he lays a framework for associating like the 72 angels, 72 hours, uh, those types of things into... Uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is going to be fundamental. We'll, we'll explain in a little bit why uh, I keep bringing up like letters and why that's why that's important. Um, after him, uh, around the 18th century, we get Vilna Gaon, uh, also known as Elijah ben Solomon Zalman. Um, he is the one that founded the Gra tree, which is another arrangement of the tree. The lines are a little bit different. Um, He's very influential on the Jewish Kabbalah side of things. And then eventually, through all of these methods and several other sources, we get the Golden Dawn. The Golden Dawn spawns three major individuals who uh, kind of publicize these things to the, to the world and uh, popularize Kabbalah as its practice, Hermetic Kabbalah as its practice today. Um, obviously, Mathers, Samuel Mathers, uh, is very influential towards like the tarot and um, stuff like that being associated to the Kabbalistic tree. Crowley uh, writes uh, 777 and other Kabbalistic writings. Uh, he writes several other, I mean, just about all of his books at, in some way reference the Kabbalah, but uh, that's, that's the one where he like literally lays out the tree and what the symbols mean. So I know that's one of the main sources of Kabbalah nowadays of Hermetic Kabbalah nowadays. And then Regardi, Israel Regardi. Uh, Israel Regardi, I know we're putting him in this category of the Golden Dawn. Um, he was not a direct member of the Golden Dawn when it existed. He was a member of one of the offshoots that was trying to keep the tradition alive after the Golden Dawn had dissolved. He was a member of the Stella Metatina. Uh, they were still practicing the same initiation rituals as the Golden Dawn or things that were very, very similar and reminiscent of it. Um, we're, we're a little unsure on exactly what he was. And then he ended up uh, publishing a lot of the Golden Dawn's work, um, including their initiation rituals and their Kabbalistic teachings. Um, 
in a book called The Golden Dawn um, and some other books as well. So those three, Crowley, Mathers, and Regardi, kind of act as how we do things today. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of other people throughout history who have been a part of that, but those are the major names that I feel like are going to come up in this presentation. Um, so, all right, we've talked a little bit about the history of it, but like, where does this actually, like, what is the Kabbalah? So I would argue that Kabbalah is alphabetic mysticism. It's mysticism running around the alphabet. And in particular, it's the Hebrew alphabet. Now, it does get used, especially in the occult, as more of like a, like a, like a sorting system of energies. But I, a lot of its foundations are towards Jewish alphabet mysticism, um, which is kind of a weird concept in modern day because we, we think about the alphabet existing pretty much entirely for the purpose of language. You know, I guess a little bit for mathematics, too. You know, we might use, like, um, like X as a variable in algebra. But for the most part, language is basically just for writing down words and someone else can pick them up and read them later, right? Um, the Greeks are the first to... Well, they're the oldest documented that we fully understand. I wouldn't say they're the first, but they're, they're the ones that are practicing this concept of uh, alphabetic mysticism. Uh, significantly earlier than uh, the Jewish community is. And it's it's an interesting idea, but I, I, while they laid the framework for their own alphabet to be associated with various things, and many of the things that get associated with them are similar, it, it's definitely not a one-to-one -one ratio where like, oh, the letter A in Hebrew and the letter A in uh, the Greek alphabet are like the same symbol. It's definitely not like a one-to-one -one ratio like that. It's very much they had their system. Uh, they came in contact with the Jewish community uh, and the Jewish community ran with the idea and did their own version of it. Uh, but you will often hear claims that, you know, the Jewish or the Greek Kabbalah is older and it is, you know, it is, it is an older system. Uh, but it, it also doesn't get associated as much with like a, a shape the way that Jewish Kabbalah does. So there's this concept of like taking a letter in an alphabet, in this context, the Hebrew alphabet, and associating it with something. Um, it's not really a stretch in my mind to do that. You know, you have some symbol that you write down on paper, it evokes some kind of a, a meaning, some kind of a message. In this case, it's a sound, right? It's like, oh, we know that this letter is ah. And this letter is buh, and so we put them together, it's ab. You know, like, we get we get the idea of it being associated with sounds. It's not a really, really big stretch to say that it's associated with other things. And that's kind of what lays the framework for the Kabbalah in general. Um, associating, uh, first off, a lot of cultures. The older the culture, the more likely this was, didn't have a separate set of symbols for their numbers. And so the case with Greek, the case with uh, Hebrew... Um, as well as several other cultures, is that they actually used letters of their alphabet to uh, signify um, like numbers. And not in the same way that we would like write out, like if you were writing a check and you write out 1,000, you could write O-N-E space T-H, you know, like spelling out the words, not so much in that sense, but that 
Uh, similar how to like the symbol for one holds a value of one in mathematics, the symbol A might hold the, the value of one for mathematics. And then they could add together, you know, various uh, letters in order to get a sum total. And that's, that's pretty popular with those old uh, systems. And so if you're already associating a, a sound and then you're associating a number, it, it's not a stretch to start associating other things to it. And that's definitely what happened in this case where they were associating certain types of elemental forces or those types of things uh, based on certain rules of linguistics. And, and so that's, that's kind of where we get the framework for Kabbalah is taking a letter and associating with other symbols, like in the case of Aleph, which is the letter A in Hebrew, uh, being associated with air. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about why Aleph with air. It's definitely not a random association. Now, there's a shape that gets associated with the Kabbalistic, it's called the Kabbalistic tree, uh, or the tree of life. Um, and that that uh, that shape is very, it's, it's geometrically interesting. Uh, it has a certain symmetry to it. There's a lot of patterns that are in it. Basically, you have a series of circles, which represent spheres, and a series of lines connecting those circles uh, to create some geometric shape. And it's it's impossible for me to describe that over a podcast. But, you know, I would say just Google Kabbalistic Tree of Life, and I'm sure you'll find the symbol that we're talking about. It's made up of uh, 10 circles and 22 lines connecting those 10 circles. And there's some invisible elements that are understood to be there as well. So there is a an 11th circle that is sometimes depicted in there. And uh, on that 11th circle, separating the top three from the bottom seven is this invisible line uh, that they call the abyss or the veil. It's this separation between the top three and the rest of them. And then above the top three, there's also these three, what they call the three nothings or the, the three... Um, three like states which exist before yeah that's a good way to word it uh, those three are ion, ion sof and ion sof or um, the, the three nothings are kind of that which divinity emanates out of I guess uh, there's ion which is like true nothingness and even to describe ion is impossible because it is nothing Right. The idea that we have attached the word nothing to it to describe it is destroying how nothing it really is. We're saying true nothingness. It's an abstract concept that your brain can definitely wrap around, but language cannot because as soon as you attach a word to it, you have made it something in at least one respect. So that's the concept of ion. Ion sof uh, is this uh, empty space. It's like it's like limitless space, a three-dimensional empty nothing, right? So if you, there's technically something there now. There's the space which something could exist in, right? And so it's another version of nothing, you know? But but now it, there's like, there's some semblance of something there because there are three dimensions for the nothing to exist in. So that's the concept of Ayn Sof. And then Ayn Sof Or is uh, limitless light. It's this idea that like that space of three-dimensional nothingness is now filled with a nothing, which is this limitless light. And um, if you think about light and the way 
Like, I'm sure you're probably surrounded by lights in some form, if you're listening to the podcast. You're probably, like, in a room. You could consider, like, the room itself, this, the empty vacuum that is the... I mean, obviously, you're not in a vacuum. Maybe you are. Maybe you're listening in space. Good on you. But you're probably not. You're probably in a room that's filled with oxygen. But you can understand that box, that room that you're in, is this, you know, volumetric empty space, right? And then the light emanating from whatever the light source is, which in this case, you wouldn't have a light source. It would just be filled with this limitless light, right? But until there's a physical object there to reflect that light, it, it's it's invisible. You know, light, light doesn't take on a property until it bounces off of a thing. And then suddenly, you know, it allows you to see, you know? Uh, so the concept of Einsafar is this limitless light filling this vacuumous volume metric space and it itself is nothing because there's nothing in the space. So that's kind of the, ob the the concept of those three nothing. So sometimes when you look at the Kaplistic tree, you might see like three curved lines up above the tree. That's what that's representing. Sometimes you might see the veil or the abyss, a line separating the top three from the bottom three. That's what that represents. And then sometimes you'll see this, uh, this extra sphere added on, an 11th sphere added on in that veil um, that represents Da'ath. But Da'ath is not an actual sphere. We'll talk a little bit about that separation. So why the layout at all? Like why, why have 10 spheres and 22 lines? And um, there's some other stuff going on as well as far as the geometric layout of it. Uh, so first off, uh, the concept of 10 is like 10 is one of the sacred numbers in, in Judaism. Um, a lot of that comes from scripture. And some of the examples of that are like the world was created in 10 divine utterances, like God speaks 10 times in, in uh, Genesis. There's some other references to the number 10 as well. There's 10 generations which pass between Adam and Noah. There's 10 between Noah and Abraham. No, Adam, Noah, and Abraham act as, you know, major characters throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. Um, Abraham receives 10 trials from God. The Israelites receive 10 trials in the desert. There's 10 plagues in Egypt, 10 miracles which occur in the temple, and there are 10 commandments. So the number 10 often comes up and is associated with these, these uh, sacred ideas, right? So uh, the big one is probably those divine utterances. So in the very, very beginning of Genesis... God speaks 10 times over the course of seven days. And each one of them, he says something and something is created as a result of that. So that's like, let there be light. And then there is light, you know, let there be a firmament. And then there is a firmament. So uh, that's one of the major sources where we get that idea of 10 being a sacred number. Um, as far as seven and three, both seven and three are also very important numbers. Uh, seven... Uh, to kind of put it into the context of the, the similar to the to the ten, uh, Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam. Enoch plays major roles. Uh, Moses is the seventh generation from Abraham. Um, David is the seventh son in his family, and and the seventh period of time is always sacred in Judaism. So the seventh day of the week is Shabbat. Uh, the seventh month is Tishrei, which is like a sacred month. The seventh year is Shemitah. And uh, the seventh Shemitah is Jubilee. 
So all of those have some special religious significance. Every occurrence of seven, the seven days of the week. And then there's uh, the seven lays of Noah. So uh, similar to how uh, Moses goes and gets the Ten Commandments, and they are ten laid out rules for uh, society. Uh, Noah has a similar experience where he gets seven rules. So there's a lot of uh, ties back to the number seven being sacred. Obviously, three we see that a lot in Christianity with like the three of you know of uh, the Trinity. Uh, there's a lot of other references to similar concepts. So all those. All those numbers get tied into sacred numbers, 10, 7, 3. And then the last one that I mentioned was 22. Now, 22 uh, is the number of letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you take 10 and you try to get some shape that also incorporates 7, 3, and 22, there's only a few ways that you can physically arrange that. And the 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 image that you will often come up with is something similar to the Kabbalistic tree of life. Uh, you have 10 spheres, those 10 circles being connected with, uh, the, so the 10 spheres are arranged on seven layers. So there's one at the very top, two on the second layer, two on the third layer, one on the fourth layer, two on the fifth, one on the sixth, one on the seventh. So there's seven layers to it. There's three columns uh, so, and also three triangles of spheres. And so you have like the concept of three being drawn both ways. There's also three lines that go directly across. So the, you have the concept of three showing up three times. Um, you have um, the 22 lines in between paths, which uh, are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can see how like if you if you sit down with the shape, you can see all of these numerology, uh, numer, numerological um, symbols kind of suggested within the shape. Okay, um, and then one that I think is important to bring up now is if you look at the columns of spheres, you have three columns of spheres. So on the left hand side, you have three spheres. In the middle, you have four spheres, and the right-hand side, you have three spheres. So there's these, these arrangements that lead to these sacred numbers. Um, there's a couple different ways that you can do it. If that's not the only shape that you can get with an arrangement of these ideas, and that actually led to a lot of different traditions over time, where you will have, uh, like the, the Ari arrangement, the Lurianic tree, um, has a slightly different shape. They've moved two of the lines. Well, theirs is probably older. Uh, but there's two two lines uh, that are taken from, from up top, like up in the, the higher area. And in the Kircher tree, which we use more in the occult nowadays, they've moved those two lines down. Uh, and then there's a gras, the gras arrangement, which is very geometrically perfect. Uh, they've, they've moved uh, several spheres up in order to be just a series of triangles, um, which has a very clean look to it. And then the, the, finally the Kircher arrangement, which has the same number of paths and letters and all of those kind of things. Um, so as far as the layout itself, there's a lot of history behind that. 
because it depends on which tradition it is that you're practicing and where, where that's coming from. So the layout of the spheres themselves being this triangle and then that triangle and that triangle and that line, um, we see that depicted very, very early on in a book called Porte Lucius, which means uh, Portals of Light. And that was written in 1516 by Joseph Ben Abraham Gicatilia. Um, and uh, I may be, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Um, but on the, uh, in the book, uh, he lays out the arrangement of the spheres themselves, the 10 circles and the paths that are on his depiction are heavily lacking. There's, there's like, I don't remember the exact number. There's like 13. I don't want to count them right now. Um, there's like, there's a, a severely short number of paths connecting these spheres, but the arrangement of where the spheres are at is pretty accurate to what we use today. Um, there was a rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Vital, in a book called Etz Chaim, uh, written in 1573, where he lays out an arrangement of the uh, spheres, does not attach any paths to them. He only lays out the arrangement of the spheres. He was a student of the Ari, and was one of the major sources for how we know of the Ari's teachings. Um, and, and in that, he doesn't actually show... He, he, it is a little bit different, the sphere layout, in that he does list Da'ath as a sphere and does not list Tifereth as a sphere. We'll talk a little bit about those names in a little bit. Um, but if you're already familiar with the tree and some of the, pat, or some of the spheres, uh, his arrangement's just a little wonky in comparison to what we use today. Uh, but it still has 10, and they're, they're in a very, very similar geometric arrangement. The one that we really take most inspiration of, the one that uh, Kircher took his inspiration from, is uh, a book called Partis Rimanim, which was written in 1592. And there's the arrangement almost identical to what Kircher ends up using, and I would argue it was intended to be exactly what Kircher is, is used, but that there was an error when the book was transcribed because the, it was it was handwritten and hand-drawn uh, and then painted, right? It was like inks, not like a paintbrush. I, actually, I don't know. I, I assume with inks, not a paintbrush. Who knows? Uh, but it shows kind of a negative image, not negative in the context of like bad, but like negative in the context of like, if you look at it like a negative photograph, like a photograph's negative, it shows a negative image of the tree where uh, the tree is a series of holes in some other image. There's like a there's like a red border and a yellow background, and the tree is drawn as holes in that yellow background. If that makes sense. Um, in that, it lays out the, the paths almost identical. It is missing one path going uh, from Netza to uh, Hode. And you can kind of see if you look at a photograph of the original uh, where it looks like originally he drew a line there and then accidentally colored it in with the ye yellow background. So if you look really, really carefully at that, it almost looks as if it does have 22 paths and then was accidentally transcribed wrong. And there's also a line drawn on one of the spheres that's a little thicker on the left-hand side where if you've ever like written a letter 
you know, like you're like writing down a word and you write a certain letter wrong because you're writing too fast. And then you go back over it and like write it in a bigger bold to correct what letter you put there. Uh, it, it almost looks like he's done that with a circle because <laughs> there's like this one section of the circle that's just a little thicker than the other. And, and the line where that error is looks like it would have connected into a path had you not drawn that letter like that. So there's, um, there are people who have, who have guessed that this, this is actually a transcribing error. And that it was actually the arrangement that Kircher ends up using. But in, at that period, there's no letters associated with specific paths. They, obviously, the, the Kabbalistic tree is associated with the alphabet. But they haven't said, like, hey, you know how there's 22 paths and 22 letters? The letter Aleph goes on this path. That later gets done by Kircher, who pulls off of that source. So Kircher, uh, in between 1652 to 1654 writes uh, Oedipus Egypticus. And in that, he lists several diagrams. One of the diagrams actually shows which letter goes where on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And that's where a lot of the inspiration for modern uh, Kabbalah, Hermetic Kabbalah comes from. Um, I would argue that he made a mistake somewhere, that he wasn't as versed with the Sefer Yetzirah in specific. And so he does them in alphabetical order. He starts from uh, top to bottom. And he, because it's um, Hebrew, he goes from right to left instead of left to right. And he goes down alphabetically, puts A and then B, and then the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet is G. So he puts, he puts them in that order as he descends down the tree. Um, it's a perfectly valid way of doing it. But as I'll describe a little bit later, I think that it, it misses a very important function in the tree. Um, so the names of the ten sephira are um, deriv derived directly from scripture. So the names, they show up many, many times. Two examples that I'm going to use are taken from Exodus and from First Chronicles. So Exodus 31.3 lists off the supernal triad and then the addition of Da'ath being an 11th pseudosphere. And then 1 Chronicles 29.11 gives off the list of all of the rest of them. Um, one of them has multiple names, so it's referenced as one of them that we don't use nowadays. But it gives a really good list, and they're in order, and it shows kind of what we're talking about of these things coming from there. The word sephira literally translates to counting or emanations. It's this idea of... Um, like things, I don't know, emitting one of the countings of, of God and his creation, if that makes sense. And the sephira nowadays are usually associated to the planetary spheres. Now, we don't talk a lot about planetary spheres anymore. It's kind of interesting. Um, back when we were using a Earth-centric model of the universe, uh, we didn't understand we were living in a heliocentric solar system, uh, we believed the Earth to be the center of the universe, right? The model of the universe that existed uh, included uh, not just the planet itself moving through the stars, but it included an entire transparent sphere which that planet was attached to. And so there was like this sphere of influence which the planet was... It, the whole sphere was rotating with just that planet on it. It wasn't just the planet moving on its own accord. Um, it got used in astrology a lot. 
and the their concept of the universe a lot. And so nowadays we would associate this, uh, the Sephiroth with the sphere of the planetary sphere of influence, not the planet itself. The planet itself would get associated to one of the one of the paths, but the planetary sphere of influence would be associated in that way, if that makes sense. And that is another reason why when we're looking at like astrology, how a planet being rotated in a direct, different direction might still have influence even though it's below the horizon is because you're on a different side of the planetary sphere's influence. So some of those kind of concepts get tied into there. Um, so I've mentioned a couple of times, there's 10, there's 11, you know, there's a pseudosphere. What am I, what am I talking about? So the Sephiroth's era itself um, in... Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, starts off with the words 10 sephirot of nothingness, 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. Now, there's a couple of different ways to interpret that. It depends on what tradition you're coming from. One of the Jewish uh, tradition interpretations is that it is drawing a line between God himself and the spheres so that you don't fall out of the system of monotheism. To, to, if you were to make God an 11th sphere or associate God with one of the spheres, you would be saying that there are either, you know, nine or, or more other gods. And so that's one of the interpretations of that is that it's, it's safeguarding monotheism. Um, another interpretation is to, to set very, very clear uh, in plain text that there are only 10 Sephirot and not 11. That there is not... Uh, an eleventh sphere, that Da'at uh, is not one of them. So that's where we get some of that. Uh, if you did put Da'at on the sphere, it would it would sit on the middle pillar, in between uh, Kether, which is the very very top, and Tifereth, which is basically in the very very middle. That's where it would sit, just on that middle line. But it would also divide the line that descends from Kether to Tifereth into a 23rd line, because it would take that 22nd line and divide it into two lines, because now there's a, you know... So that would throw off some of the geometry. There's a couple of different reasons why it's not, not used. Um, so I'm going to read off the names of the spheres, and I'm going to do so in numerical order, starting at the top, then going to the second layer, which has two of them on there, and then I'm going to read that layer from right to left because that's their ordering, because Hebrew is written right to left instead of left to right. I'm going to put Da'ath in there, but remember that that one is a pseudosphere. It doesn't actually represent a whole sphere so much as it is the concept of knowledge of the supernal triad. Uh, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute. So the very, very top one is Kether. Then you have Chokmah, Bina, Da'ath, uh, Chesed, Gabura, Tifereth, Netzah, Hod, Yesod, and Malkuth. Okay, so that's the list, right? And um, the names themselves, they translate to uh, Kether is unity, Hukumah is wisdom, uh, Bina is understanding, Da'at is knowledge. Um, then there's uh, Chesed is mercy or love. Gaburu is power or strength. It's, it, it associates more strength. Um, and then uh, it goes to glory or beauty, which is Tifereth. Then victory, which is Netzah, splendor, which is Hod, Yesod is foundation, and Malkuth is kingdom. And those are literal translations of those words. Um, in Exodus, as we talked, Exodus 31.3, the whole supernal triad and then Da'ath is listed in order. 
the verse reads, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. So in that verse, we're to understand that Kether, being unity, is spirit of God. And then wisdom, chokmah, bina, understanding, and then knowledge, ta'ath. And so if you read that verse in Hebrew, it does actually say filled with the spirit of God and with um, chokmah, with bina, with da'ath. Those are literal translations of those words. Uh, then uh, now I'm switching over to First Chronicles 29:11. Uh, the verse reads, "Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is the kingdom in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all." Uh, so that lists off most of them. However, I want to mention that uh, similar to how Spirit of God is a stand-in for unity for Kether. Uh, in this verse, there is a stand-in for uh, hesed being a different word. Uh, I, I believe, if if I remember off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me, I think it says viga, vigadula, um, which is greatness. Um, and, and you will sometimes see, like in the Kabbalistic cross within the uh, Lesser Banishing Ritual, the pentagram, uh, sometimes uh, hokma is swapped out for vigadula. Um for greatness. And so you see them listed and they are in order. It says, and the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Majesty is a weird one. Uh, majesty gets swapped out for uh, splendor. Um, but it's kind of more down to translation than it is a stand-in name the same way that um, Hesed is. Um, so uh, like the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, for example, the Kabbalistic Cross goes, Ata Malkuth Figabura Vigadula. And then it says, Leolam Amen, which means forever. Amen. Um, so you can kind of see how there's this direct line of this information um, directly back to these spheres. And, and that's actually a really interesting uh, breakdown phrase because in the story of Christ, uh, the very, very end of the Lord's Prayer, he's, he's praying at the end of the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before the Romans crucify, capture and crucify him, or he surrenders and they crucify him. He doesn't really, yeah, they don't like capture him, he doesn't run. But they show up at the gates after he leaves the garden. This is the last time that he's praying as a free man. Um, and uh, the very, very last words of that prayer, and remember, he was a uh, Jew, Hebrew-speaking Jew. Well, it would have been Aramaic, but a lot of these words carry over into Aramaic. Um, the very, very last words of that prayer were, Ata Malkuth Figabur Figadula Le'olam Amen. So it's interesting for two reasons. Number one, Christ uh, draws a cross with his words on the end of the prayer, foreshadowing what's going to happen next uh, by saying, Ata being unto thee, unto thee being the spirit of God, so being kether, unity consciousness. And then he draws a line straight down with the next word, which is Malkuth, the kingdom, right? And then he draws a cross going over from Hesed to uh, Gabura when he says, Figabura, Vigadula. Um, and uh, that, uh, that line that he draws in that order is how the Catholics cross themselves over. Um, so, it is an interesting foreshadowing, definitely a Kabbalistic uh, reference that I wish more people talked about. I think it's kind of a cool symbol that shows up in there. Okay, so we talked about the spheres themselves. Um, unfortunately, without 
you know, pictures. It's kind of hard to show you exactly which one goes on which sphere, but I kind of, I kind of explained that, you know, you go top to bottom, right to left, and uh, that's how you get each sphere onto the specific ones. One that is really interesting, and I think it warrants bringing up right now, is the very, very bottom one and the very, very top one are treated as kind of special. So the top one, Kether, Unity, has the seed of everything that will be in existence uh, contained within it. Uh, because it's like the very, very top emanation. It's like before creation was made, right? The very, very bottom one is everything now having been manifest because Malkuth sits at the very, very bottom of the tree and all the spheres above it feed their energy down into it. And so it has a little bit of everything in it, similar to how Kether has a little bit of everything in it. But instead of being the seed and the potential of those things, it is those things now manifest. But because of that, it's also the densest and the farthest from the divine emanation because it's, you know, it's uh, the farthest down the tree. It's the farthest away from God's creation, if that makes sense. The creative force that generates the universe in Jewish tradition. Um, we do see some of those symbols pop up a lot um, of like Malkuth being, you know, interesting and special because of that. I don't want to get too much into them here. but um, Okay, so then the association of those things with so, so that's the Jewish Kabbalah side of the spheres. There's the association of those spheres um, with the planetary spheres and the planet, the the Earth-centric model of the universe. So, um, the old belief was that the objects which are moving the fastest are the closest to you and the objects which are moving the slowest are the farthest from you. So their movement in relation to the stars that are behind them. So if you look at the night sky, um, other than the case of the sun, because obviously you can't see the one in the night sky. <laughs> but if you look at the object and then what stars are relating to it, what are, what's closest to it, and you measure that, and then the next night you go out and you measure it again, and you do that for seven months or whatever, so you see some of the movements of the slower ones. Um, the objects, they used to believe that the objects which were the closest to us are the ones which are moving the fastest. Now, it's not terribly inaccurate. Uh, it's pretty damn close. Um, obviously, there are cases where, depending on which side of the solar system certain planets are on, they might be farther or closer to us. But uh, as, far as, as far as it goes, they... The, for the most part, that is pretty accurate. So that the order that they would go in usually is obviously Earth is the closest to you because you're standing on it. And then uh, the moon moves pretty damn quickly through the stars. Uh, then Mercury, Venus, the sun. The sun does, of course, as you move around it, it travels throughout the zodiac, um, which is where you get like, you know, your zodiac sign. Um, then Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And then there was this double layer thing that was the zodiac and then the houses. Um, so there's like two spheres for the sphere of the zodiac. There's like the, the, the zodiac itself. And then there's like the physical stars that relate to the zodiac. And then the very, very outside layer was called the prima mobile. So, so this 
you could find this diagram if you want. Uh, it's it's very available. Um, if this was popularized by Aristotle and Ptolemy, um, their model of the universe. And uh, usually you can find it under the Ptolemaic model of the universe. So if you want to see the diagram that we're looking at right now. Uh, but basically, you have the Earth at the center, and then you have a circle around that that's marked Luna, a circle around that that's marked uh, Mercury. So there's that order based on the speed which they move, right? And uh, the very, very outside being the, uh, the prima mobile is this idea that the prime mover, that's Latin for the prime mover, uh, being that force which moves the universe and the rest of the spheres. It's like the spinning that makes all the other things happen. And that's generally associated with like some kind of, um, I don't know, like God force. Some kind of the prime mover being some divine force which moves all the other things. And, and so if you take the Kabbalistic tree of life and you start at the very, very bottom with Malkuth, which means kingdom and is associated with the earth in physical manifest reality... And then you assign the rest of them in that order, starting from the 10th, then going to the 9th, the 8th, the 7th, the 6th, the 5th, the 4th, the 3. Then you get all except for, so that those are just the planets, right? You go moon, Mercury, Venus, uh, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Then there's only two spheres left. Uh, the second sphere on the Tree of Life gets associated to the zodiac itself, the actual stars. And that includes... Uh, two layers in the Ptolemic um, model, uh, which is the, the zodiac themselves and then the, the actual zodiac forces. So those, those two layers, the stars themselves, the actual constellations, and then the forces themselves. So that gets uh, the zodiac. And then the very, very top one becomes associated with the prima mobile. Okay? So you can see they've taken the, the Jewish Kabbalah concept now we're talking more about the Hermetic Kabbalah concept and why they associated specific planetary forces, specific spheres, with the other spheres, the, the spheres on the tree. The, the spheres in the model with the spheres of the tree. Uh, and so it's, it's taken directly from that. Now, I would note here that um, when it comes to the last two or three, depending on if you're adding Doth to the, to the diagram, um, it is common for people now modernly to add in some extra planets and those planets relating to things that you can only see with a telescope um, so those the reason why those seven celestial objects in the old world way of doing things were considered you know not stars and everything else is stars is because those are the objects that are visible to the naked eye it's not until you add telescope equipment that you can see things like neptune pluto and uranus uh, but i have seen modernly people add Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto into the tree on those spots. I don't think that's in, incredibly useful for the purposes of this because in order to do that, you have to take certain symbols away from the other planets in order to uh, make room for them to have symbols to be associated with. And so, so I generally don't use that. Some people do. A lot of modern astrologers will put some like generational and civilization-sized things into... Neptune and Pluto and Uranus. Um, usually I would not associate a planetary sphere with the Oth at all because it's not actually a sphere. And then I would say, instead of making Hokma Neptune and Kether Pluto, because Pluto energies don't really work really well with the concept of Kether, uh, nor do I think, well, Neptune's better for Hokma than 
uh, Pluto is for Kether, but I would say uh, it's better to just keep it with the old way of doing it for the sake of analyzing symbols and dissecting these ideas, tying back into ancient philosophy and those kind of things. I'd say that it, it just works better to use the sphere of the zodiac and the prime mobile for those two. Um, yeah. Um, so that's where we get planetary associations on those. Now, um, Crowley kind of expands a little bit. This is my favorite quote of Crowley. <laughs> I don't know why I've attached so much onto it. It's not in, it's not incredibly inspirational in comparison to a lot of his other work, but it just explains ceremonial magic so well that I find myself referencing it all the time. So if you ever meet me in person and I break this quote out, don't be surprised. <laughs> Um, there's there's a there's a section in Liber Ovel Manus at Sagittaria where Crowley, which is where the lesser ritual of the pentagram was first uh, published, as well as several other rituals. Um, I always think it's funny when people stop learning new stuff after that point. Um, they, they don't go to the lesser hexagram and then the greater pentagram, the greater hexagram, uh, and then adapting those rituals into your own stuff, which it lays out perfect instructions on how to do. It's a fantastic book. Read it. Um so in Libro, Crowley talks about some of the way that that gets used. It's a very, very long quote. I'm just going to read a couple of different sections out of the long quote. But basically he says the planet corresponding is Mercury. Its number is eight. Its linear figure, the octogram and octagon. Its color is orange for Mercury is the sphere of the Sephira Hode, the number eight. You would then prepare your place of working accordingly. In an orange circle, you would draw an eight-pointed star of yellow, at whose points you would place eight lamps. And then he continues on to kind of explain how you might adapt a ritual in order to more focus on mercurial energies. But it, it points out a really important concept that I think warrants being brought up here, which is the number of a planet being associated, Mercury being associated with the number eight. And this is where that comes from. It doesn't actually come from the Ptolemaic model because the Ptolemaic model starts counting at Luna instead of at Earth. So it goes through this order. The order is called the Chaldean order, and that's just the order in which things move the fastest in the sky, right? Uh, being Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, Luna, or if you're going up, descending, or that's descending order. There's the ascending order, starting at Earth and going Luna, Mercury. You get the idea. Um, they start counting those spheres at Luna, instead of at Earth. And so if you were to be going off the Ptolemaic number system, you would say that Mercury is the number two. Uh, whereas in, in most ceremonial magic, you would associate the number eight with Mercury. And it has to do with how if you assign the planetary spheres in the order that I just suggested, uh, the number Earth 10, the number of the moon nine, the number of Mercury eight, and then so on and so forth until you get all the way up to the prime of mobile. Um, so you will see that a lot where people associate like the number six, for example, with the sun. And this is this is very common in, in magical practice to associate specific numbers with specific energies. And this is, you know, kind of how we get that arrangement of ideas, which brings me to a fun side tangent that has to do with a British court case where Alistair Crowley was... Uh, suing for was it defamation or libel i want to say it was defamation there's a defamation case between somebody who had uh, gone to the news and said this is the evilest man in the whole world and there was this whole 
big court case in a, the British court system where Crowley was claiming that, you know, it's defamation for you to call me the most evil man in the world just for having this spiritual practice that you don't perfectly uh, believe. And um, the individual that he was up against, uh, and several individuals got brought into the case, was a member of the Golden Dawn. They were both members of the same fraternal order. And uh, Crowley was understandably upset. And as part of the evidence against Crowley, uh, the, the judge directly asked Crowley, hey, you know, here's this evidence that you call yourself the Beast 666. Uh, are you not defaming yourself? Can they be defaming you if you yourself are calling yourself this thing? And he, is, he, he lets the, the judge know in, in a, a very famous quote uh, that the number, I do associate with the number 666, and that's because it is a solar number. You can call me Little Sunshine. That's where that phrase, call me Little Sunshine. There's a song that's been made by the band uh, Ghost called Call Me Little Sunshine. Not, I, I'm sure the reference Call Me Little Sunshine is in direct reference to Crowley. The song itself more references like Mephistopheles and the devil and those kind of things. But the phrase Call Me Little Sunshine referencing this this court case. Um, it's a fun little uh, court case, but I like, I like to point out this particular uh, association when people talk about it. Because the number six being associated with the sun is part of this understanding of the planetary spheres climbing the ballistic tree and the number six being the sixth sphere, the sphere of Tifereth, and that being a solar energy type thing. A very common practice in uh, medieval magic and Renaissance magic, and which has now made its way to us, of course, and we still practice this today, is the idea of um, magic squares of numbers. So what a magical square is, is where you take a sequence of numbers um, so let's say the numbers one through, I don't know, as an example, let's say one through five, and then you would create a box that holds all of those numbers where every line equals the same number as every column equals the same number as every, it, sometimes they also include diagonals, but usually it's every line and every column equals the same number. And this is a really, really common practice in uh, medieval and Renaissance magic, where they will take <coughs> some number that holds import. So, for example, the number six, right? And then you would make a box that is six across and six down. So six columns, six rows, which would leave you with 36 squares. So six times six is 36. And you would take the numbers in order, one through 36, and arrange them within that square so that they are mathematically perfect. And there's only a couple of ways that you can do this for each number. It's a very it's a very rare thing. It's not like you can just throw numbers down willy-nilly. And if you'd like to, you can totally try this for yourself. Uh, the, the more numbers that you have, the, the more obvious the challenge becomes. So I would suggest, I don't know, maybe starting off with like, I don't know, like seven or eight or something like that. It can, it can really, thir 36 and the number six, you'll see pretty quickly why it creates problems. And so basically what you end up doing is you end up having uh, a square of numbers that um, are all sequential, end up every row and every column equals the same thing. And in some cases, you'll also have diagonals also equal the same thing. Uh, very common practice in, in Renaissance magic. So... Um, in the case of Call Me Little Sunshine, if you take the number six 
and you create a magic square, so it's six by six. Every number, one through 36, is put in there. Every column and every row equals 111. And that there are very few ways to arrange it. It is basically that that is the only way to do it. You could do the mirror image of it as well um, across any plane. So uh, you could feasibly uh, flip the box, um, flip X with Y, so you would have it mirror image left to right. You could also mirror image up to down. But the numbers in relationship to each other can only be in this one particular position, right? Uh, often what ends up happening is the next step in a lot of these kind of workings is they'll like draw a sigil out of, you know, some of this, this uh, series of numbers. Uh, in the case of the solar one, it's 111 on each row and each column. And if you add all of those numbers up, it equals 666. So if you if you start off with, and, and the, the quick way to get to this answer is just to add all the numbers together. So one through 36, add them all together, you get 666. But uh, the reason why someone would be adding those numbers together in that particular way is because of these magical squares. So um, you can see how a lot of ceremonial magic is derived from the number associated to the spear on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and why that comes from this particular shape. Uh, it's, I think it's a very interesting um, an interesting thing that ends up happening. Okay, so the spheres themselves, we talked about all the different shapes and spheres. Eh, we haven't talked a lot about the shapes, but we will in a little bit. Uh, so the paths now, there are 22 paths on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Now, that, of course, relates to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And to understand a little bit more about the geometry that's within the shape, we'll look to the Sefer Yetzirah. So um, those 22 paths and the 22 letters relate to a whole bunch of different stuff. The The tree that Kircher made, it, it organizes the entire alphabet via geometric value, gemetria, which is the number of value associated to that Hebrew letter which is also to say in alphabetical order. He goes through an alphabetical order. Um, but that is also to say their numerical value. Some other symbols that have been attached to the paths via this method of association are things like the elements, the planets, the zodiac, um, and then manifestations of whatever symbol, the element, planet, or horoscope, uh, manifestations of that symbol in other ways. So like different animals and those animals would be like related to like let's say it's a uh let's say off the top of my head it's a planetary one it's like uh, venus right so like what type of animal would most relate to the energy of venus and that would be in uh, if i'm correct let's go off the top of my head i want to say dove i don't know yeah it's not worth double checking but you get the idea uh, associating the animals to those particular energies uh, also, things like perfumes, gods in various pantheons, like Greek gods, Egyptian gods, those kind of things. Uh, different, like, angelic forces, if you're working with a pantheon that's, you know, doing other stuff. The tarot cards is a really, really common one. That one is popularized by Mathers and uh, very well... Yeah, I would argue that it's very well might be Mathers' actual work, that he created it. He claims that he found it in the Cypher Manuscript. But the Cypher manuscript itself has questionable origins, uh, and so it, it appears as if it is somebody's work uh, that 
is right around that time period, it would make sense that it was either him or his compatriots. Uh, so the tarot, how they would arrange on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. There are 22 trumps of the tarot. Uh, so they fit very, very well onto the 22 paths. Similar to how um, Kircher put the paths as numerical value in an alphabetical order, they put them in numerical order um, straight down the list. Except for one small swap, which we'll talk about in a little bit. There's, there's a swap that they make, and then Crowley makes the second swap in order to um, balance out the first swap. And the first swap makes a lot of sense. I, not to say the second swap doesn't make a lot of sense, too, but a lot of people argue with the second one. <laughs> um, okay, so we know that the letter of the Hebrew alphabet is going to be associated with a specific planet, element, or zodiac sign. So how do you get to the point where you talk about which one is which? Well, the, the starting point for a lot of this is going to be the geometric value goes straight down, uh, starts off with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, going straight down the alphabet. Then when you get to 10, they start counting in 10. So they go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. When we get to 100, they start counting in 100s. So the very, very last letter of the alphabet. Uh, would have a value of 400. And then there are also some that have two different forms. And so there are actually some letters that, if written in one style, might have a value of, you know, something written in another, they might have a value of 500. So um, arranged on the Kabbalistic tree, they follow that number format. And then the alphabet, them, uh, alphabet items themselves get associated in a later period to various things. So Rabbi uh, Akavi, Akava lived in the 1st and 2nd century, and he associates various letters with various concepts. Now there's multiple versions of his work. They call it the alphabet of Rabbi Akavi. Akava, I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Uh, basically, they're unrelated to the current interpretations of the Kabbalah, but they established that the idea of associating various energies with the letters of the Kabbalistic tree uh, are like an oral tradition that was probably being passed around at that time. And so it it uh, it does really well to establish Jewish canon of that type of an idea being associated to their alphabet. Now, eventually in the Sefer Yetzirah, which as we talked about was around that same time period, there are three different categories of letters. And the three different categories are the mother letters, the double letters, and the single letters. The mother letters is where the book kind of opens up and starts dissecting first. It talks about the base. They're basically the base sounds of the alphabet. They There are three of them. And um, they make up your three primary elements. And then the mix of the three makes the fourth element being earth. And these are, these are pretty straightforward cut and paste. They are, I mean... We still use the elemental associations, which is laid out in the Sefer Yetzirah. It is not like, oh, hey, they said something kind of like dominion. So we're going to kind of associate that with this element. It is like in the Sefer Yetzirah, it says this one is this element. Like cut and dry, very plain. The double letters, there are seven of them. Uh, and they're called double letters because they make two noises. So at the period where this book is being written, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels or any notes to notate vowels. It also doesn't have any notes to notate when a sound might be 
like one alphabet letter might make two sounds. And so you kind of have to hear the word before you know which specific one. Now they have added some marks, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but all of these seven letters uh, are letters that make two noises, potentially. And then the final is single letters. These are the simple sounds. There's 12 of them. So we have a division of three, we have a division of seven, and that would leave us with 12 leftover letters. We have a division of 12. So it's very, very easy to see why, first off, the Hermetics went, hmm, that's a division that's very, very similar to what we use. But also the Sephirids here lays out many of the same kind of things. You know, they, they do divide up the seven planets, which are visible with the naked eye, into being the seven that are here. They do divide up the 12 zodiac as being, you know, here. They don't do it in quite the same associative way, but they do, they do do a very, very similar practice. And the mother letters being three instead of four elements, but that whole concept of Malkuth being the earth element and being that which receives energy from the rest of the tree becomes like a, a justification for there only being three in this particular system. And to be fair, in alchemical workings, there are certain alchemical understandings that divide things by three for elemental purposes as well. Um, it's not unheard of. So let's look at the specific breakdowns themselves. So in the Sephirites era, in chapter one, verse two, now I'm using the Arya Kaplan translation. There are multiple translations. And in particular, Arya Kaplan, he uh, translated... Uh, there are different versions of the Sephirites era. Short list, long list, uh, Graw list, and I don't remember what the fourth one is called. Anyway, there's, there's four different versions of it. He, he in his book, uh, his translation of the Sephirites era, he does include all four of them. Um, so we're using the one from the main text for these quotes, um, which I believe is the latest of the four. But then he later also, if you look to the back of the book, he doesn't write commentary on each of them, but he, he writes commentary on that, that most recent version of it because it has the most information. So if you have translated that one, you have a lot of verses were like added in, in later years and things like that. Uh, so in Sephirot's era, chapter one, verse two, it says 10 Sephirot of nothingness. That phrase shows up a lot. We've already talked about it once. Uh, Sephirot of nothingness kind of just means that it's like a receptive, it's like a vessel. It's like a, like a cup, like a bowl, like a, it's a receptive it's a hole, you know, it's like a, uh, it's, yeah, a hole. That's a really good way to put it. Um, kind of because they think of it like a hole through which God is uh, inputting, emanating his energy in one respect or another um, in order to create the universe. Yeah, that's a good way to word it. Ten Sephiroth of nothingness and 22 foundation letters, three mothers, seven doubles, and 12 elementals. It's important here to understand uh, elementals is not referencing elementals like we would talk about in the occult. It's saying elemental as in like elementary, my dear Watson. You know, like uh, like more along the lines of um, simple. So usually when translated, uh, I would suggest changing this word to simple. Um, he's not the only person that translates it as elemental. Um, I can never remember. Mathers is... The other founding member, not Samuel Mathis, the other founding member of the Golden Dawn also translated Westcott. Westcott also translated this same text and also translated this word as elementals. And I thought that was really interesting because uh, Westcott was more of an occultist than a 
practicing or like an individual practicing Judaism. And so it was interesting that coming from his background and having so much connotation for the word elemental that he didn't use the word simple. However, if you break down the specific word in Hebrew, the word in there is uh, pashtut, which means simplicity, uh, which is being formed from the word pashut, which is simple, and it meaning ness, so pashtut, meaning simplicity or simpleness. Uh, so 12 of simpleness, if that makes sense. Um, so the mother letters themselves are the letters Aleph, Mem, and Shim. Uh, Aleph, Mem, and Shin are the three mother letters, and they make very, very primal noises. They are kind of like the beginning of language in a lot of ways. And so they're kind of thought of as like that which language stems from. So you have Aleph being the letter A in Hebrew, and it makes an ah sound, which if you think about the letter A, an ah, right? What you're really doing is you're opening up your mouth just to just a very neutral open position, and you're breathing out. So it's kind of got this airy quality of just, oh, like that's the sound that Aleph makes. Mem is kind of the exact opposite. You close your mouth and make a noise. Mm. Mem is the letter M in their language. And it's associated with uh, kind of the other side of that. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about Mem. Yeah, that'll be the very next thing we talk about. Hold your breath for that one. Don't hold your breath. Oh, what a terrible idea. I talk really long. You'll probably pass out. <laughs> um, okay, so shin. Uh, shin is the letter SH. It makes a sh noise. And uh, it gets associated with fire f for making a like a hissing noise. Kind of like the crinkling of a fireplace. Uh, so Aleph, Mem is, is water. Okay, so let's talk about that. So Mem in particular is probably one of my favorite letters of even my own alphabet for how it plays into the long-running track of where language comes from. Um, okay, so so mem, the word mem in Hebrew translates directly to water. That is the word for water. But before that, the letter M uh, is based on the Phoenician Phoenician symbol uh, for water. And so the Phoenicians had uh, traveled around the world that they were aware of and passed their alphabet onto a bunch of different people. And one of them was the Greeks, which eventually uh, affected the Romans. One of them was the Egyptians, which changed kind of the way that they perceived language because they were using hieroglyphs, of course. One of them was the uh, Hebrews, the Jewish people. Uh, and so... A lot of language and alphabets can be traced back to Phoenician symbols. Each culture kind of adapts a little bit, draws the symbol a little bit differently, maybe maybe writes their words a little bit differently. All of that's pretty straightforward and standard. But when it comes to this, it's it's kind of like the the alphabet letter that we based our alphabet on, if that makes sense. So we receive, and I'm an English-speaking individual, obviously. <laughs> I say like those kind of like obvious statements, but I did. Um, we receive our, our alphabet via Latin. It is the Latin alphabet, uh, Latin being the tongue spoken of the Romans, the ancient Romans. And um, the Latin alphabet was heavily influenced by cultures that were nearby and had received many of the letters of their alphabet from the Greeks, 
Now, the Greeks had based their alphabet on the Phoenicians. The word phonetics is the Greek word for dissecting the art of the Phoenicians. Phonetics, phonotion, right? That's why it's spelled with a P-H, E-O. It's from that same root word. And the Phoenicians had uh, passed their alphabet to the Greeks directly. Then the Phoenicians had, before inventing their alphabet, had been using a system of hieroglyphics, which were um, inspired or um, influenced by the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics. And so there's this common thread of language that goes back a very long ways. And one of the things that's really interesting is if you follow the letter M, because in modern day language, the letter M is still a hieroglyphic. In English, capital M is still a hieroglyphic. And it kind of blew my mind when I first realized this because I had never really thought about it before. But the Egyptian symbol for, uh, it was Mayim at that point. It wasn't Mem or it was Mayim. The, the Egyptian symbol was uh, two squiggly lines, kind of similar to the symbol for Aquarius where it was like a squiggly line and then just below it, a squiggly line. It was very pointed, similar to how our letter M has like points to it. And then when it got to the Phoenician hieroglyphics, they wrote it as one squiggly line because it, it kind of got the point across. It's like, you know, if you've ever like looked at a little kid and he's drawing waves or like the ocean or a lake or something, and he just takes the blue marker and he puts it down on the pen and he just draws a squiggly line with points on it. It's what it used to look like. Phoenician simple, uh, simplified it and then simplified it further when making their alphabet. And then that passed on to, uh, in, in my case, it passed on to the Greeks, and then it, it was passed on to the Romans. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans um, trimmed it down to just a single zigzag of just two wave points. And that's where we get the letter M, <laughs> right? Two upward pointed zigzags. So... It's, it's really fascinating, specifically the letter M being associated with water, because still to this day in English, it is a hieroglyphic of waves, right? It's just been simplified generation after generation in, in order to look like something that's a little less, little less obvious, right? Simpler to write, I'm sure, was the intention there. Um, but in this case, uh, the letter Mem in Hebrew translates to the word Mem, which literally means water and the symbol is kind of like a wave. It's it's not it's not a it's not a very close representation of a wave. But you can if you ever go look up a chart, you can see like the Phoenician alphabet and how it was changed by different cultures and why they drew it the way that they did. So it actually does make a whole lot of sense in that case. But in in the Sephiroth era, it talks about um, the sound of they used to say like water hums or is silent. And if you think about like holding your mouth shut in silence and then making a noise. Mm, you get the, the letter M. Um, so then the Sephiroth continues. It says three mother letters, Aleph, Mem, Shin, a great mystical secret covered and sealed with six rings and from them emanated. The six rings is probably not important for our conversation. There is some interesting Judaic concepts that are tied into there, but it says, and from them emanated air, water, and fire. That's the direct translation. Three mothers, Aleph, Mem, Shin. Mem hums, Shin hisses, and Aleph is the breath of air deciding between them. So it, it goes back to this, this uh, concept of, 
linguistics, the language, and the way that like certain letters make certain sounds. And these are the fundamental sounds in order to make all the more complex sounds, right? Um, and then it also goes into this idea of what's above, below, and in the middle, right? Because it has aleph, mem, shin, mem hums, shin hisses, and aleph is the breath of air deciding between them, which goes back to the uh, Ptolemaic uh, model of the universe, where the belief of Earth, and the belief until Newton got hit in the head with the apple, that whole story, I'm sure that's um, allegory, but uh, until that period where somebody was like, hey, things fall down because of gravity, there's a force that we're not accounting for. They used to believe that things um, seeked their natural place. That like things which were lighter would float up and things which were heavier would sink down and that thing that elements naturally seek their natural place within the world and so the belief was that earth and water um, sink to the lowest and then uh, air is in between and then on the other side of air sky clouds all that kind of stuff on the other side of that is a, a realm of fire it was believed because you know if you think about standing outside in the desert sun uh, where does all the heat come from directly above you and if you put like a like just a roof on four pegs and you stand there now, the shade is covering you. You don't have as much of the fiery heat beating down on you, but you can feel from the left or from the right the air blowing in and uh, you can feel the breeze. And so there was this idea that like the entire world was arranged in this way. And if you go stand on a beach and you're paying attention to that, you kind of can see how there's a sun and the sun's fire very, very up high. And then there's this layer of clouds here, which is air represented. And then there's water collecting down at the bottom and earth being a similar element. And so uh, there's this idea in the mother letters specifically of Shin being up high, Aleph being in the middle and Mem being at the bottom. And the idea of air deciding between them being this like barrier in between the two of them. Uh, so that's, that's some interesting information about specifically the mother letters. So let's look at the double letters now and why they're associated with the planets. So th them being associated with the planets is completely canonical. The way that uh, in Kabbalah, uh, Hermetic Kabbalah, we do it, um, we've, we've taken some creative liberties to align things the way that we like them to be aligned. <laughs> uh, so it says uh, in, this is not, Maybe it is chapter one, verse two, three mothers, seven. Yeah, it is. That's chapter one, verse two. Ten sephirot of nothingness and 22 foundation letters, three mothers, seven doubles, 12 elemental. So the 12 or the double letters, this is them in order, are Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Kef, Pei, Resh, and Tav. And I don't expect anybody to just immediately remember. The thing I want to do most is kind of demonstrate that there's a reason why we do these kind of things. We didn't just randomly associate letters to the alphabet. There were like reasons behind it, right? So uh, in the case of the double letters, they are the things that make two sounds. We said that before, but now in modern Hebrew, they have a dot, which is called a dagesh, and that denotes which of the two sounds, if it has the dot versus if it doesn't have the dot. But before the invention of the dagesh, there was not any difference between these letters. They were... Uh, exactly identical nowadays they also have some new uh dots and dashes and things that are above and below letters that have to do with vowels 
they have to do with like communicating which value you use in between letters. But before it was just whichever one sounds the most natural and, and which one uh, is the right sound. You just knew because you had you could read context and those kind of things. So um, the double letter, so like for example, uh, B and V are very, very incredibly similar via ancient languages. Um, they're basically the same sound for most of human history. Uh, and then eventually um, certain groups start to pronounce it one way or the other. Those groups that are pronouncing it one way or the other. And I know it sounds weird. B and V, why are those so... One's a plosive. One makes a sound, right? B, right? The other one's V. But if you just connect your lips while making the plosive sound, you'll, or if you just unconnect your lips, you'll make the V. Or if you just connect your lips while making the the V noise, you make a B. They're incredibly similar mouth postures. And for a long time, they were one letter. And then cultures, you know, got separated by landmass or whatever. And then you get accents, just like how in the United States, the people in the South talk different from the people in the North. You get a little bit of an accent. And then they, they come back together via trade routes. They trade with each other. One of them has invented some new thing. And they're like, yeah, this thing is called a, and the letter starts with a V. And now suddenly there's two letters in the alphabet. Right. And so a lot of this stems from situations like that or context of words that uh, people understand. You know, you make this particular noise with this one. So the letter Beth makes a, a B or a V sound, depending on whether in modern Hebrew it's together with the Dagash. All of the double letters make two noises like that, except for one. Um, so um, an example of one that does is um the cough noise that makes either like a like a strong k or a weak k similar to how you might say like king like the letter king or the the word king or bach right the composer bach is a soft k it's what it's notated a lot of times with ch and it's usually at the end of a word and they sound really really similar so some of them are going to be really obvious like uh like bet making a b or a v noise like a boat or vote very different words some of them are going to be like really really subtle like king or bach but there's one in particular that we don't know and it drives everybody nuts because when the sefer yetzirah was written there was clearly two noises associated with this letter and now there's not um there are words written in hebrew that have the dagash on the letter R, resh. There are there are words that have the dagash and words that do not have the dagash. Uh, but now, modernly, it is pronounced as a single sound. So just like things can separate linguistically, they can come back together over thousands of years. And we're not really sure what the other noise was. It's kind of lost to time. Um, one good theory that I have heard that I would agree with is probably the truth. Uh, is the idea of the trill versus like a, like an R. So a trill is like, um, a lot of times you hear trills uh, in like uh, Spanish or uh, those types of languages where it's almost like a like an R mixed with like a D where it's like, ra, ra, ra. This is a bunch, these are trills. These are trills. Whereas like a stronger R uh, is ra, like the word resh, resh, right? Resh versus resh. You kind of hear the difference between those sounds. That's that's the theory, uh, or one of many theories as to what the second sound it made when the Sephiroth series was written. 
Okay, so you get seven letters, they all make two noises. So that gets associated with uh, spectrums of things, where you have like, like a theme that the letter was associated with, and then uh, a spectrum that something might exist on because of that. Uh, so Sefirot here says seven duddle, uh, doubles, lists off what the doubles are, and then says their foundation is wisdom, wealth, seed, life, dominance, peace, and grace. Seven doubles, lists off the doubles, in speech and in transposition. The transpose of wisdom is folly, the transpose of wealth is poverty, the transpose of seed is desolation, the transpose of life is death, the transpose of dominance is subjugation, the transpose of peace is war, the transpose of grace is ugliness. So you can see like kind of that spectrum that I'm talking about, where like each and every one of these was associated with something, and then unfortunately it doesn't say which one was associated with which, uh, but each one of them is associated with something, and then that's kind of understood to be like a like a varying scale wealth is poverty so it's anywhere between wealth and poverty right life and death anywhere between life and death peace and war anywhere between peace and war these it's a concept of opposites and then it continues by associating with planets so the idea of associating specifically these letters with planets is already something that they were doing seven planets in the universe this is chapter four verse seven Seven planets in the universe, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon. Seven days in the year, the seven days of the week, seven gates of the soul, male and female. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and the mouth. And so uh, it paints this picture of anything that is broken down into sevens would be associated with this. And it specifically states that the planets are. And it lists off the alchemical planets. So that kind of green lights Hermetic Kabbalah to do what it will with it because it doesn't say which ones are which sometimes it's interpreted as the order in which they are presented in both of those two different verses is the order in which they are associated but if nothing else it suggests that the days of the week are associated to the planets and the planets are associated to the letters and so you could make jumps in order to figure out which ones are which now um there's a lot of difference in the oral tradition and the written tradition, handwritten tradition before printing press, similar to how, like, you know, the Bible has multiple different versions because people transcribing things will transcribe them over. And the interpretation of the Hermetic tradition uh, appears a little bit later. And so it's a little bit less swapped around, if that makes sense. So there's... There's a couple of different versions, and I, as I talked about, like, Arya Kaplan, uh, he translated all four of these. Uh, there's a short version, the long version, the Saudi version, and the Grot version. Those are the four. Those are the different manuscript versions. Similar to how you might say, like, the King James Bible versus the New International Version Bible or something like that, right? And so different versions associated the different letters in different ways, because as people were transcribing it, sometimes they wrote the letters in different orders or the planets in different orders, or they added entire verses to explain which one was which. So, like, the longer, later versions of the Sefer Yetzirah includes a breakdown of which planet gets associated with which thing, whereas the earlier versions did not, right? So one example of that is how the Saudi version does it. The Saudi version goes through in alphabetical order and then uh, does those in Chaldean order, which is the speed at which things are moving in the sky. Um, it's part of the supplementary chapters in the Sefer Yetzirah, not part of the original content. And it follows that same order that the um, Kabbalistic Tree of Life spheres. Uh, that the or that's the order 
Um, it's a ver- it's observable in the universe, you know, like you can observe it, which makes a lot of sense as to why a lot of cultures put those planets in those or that order. It's not just some, you know, random thing or proof that they were all in cahoots together in some large global conspiracy. It's that you can physically stand outside on your back porch, you know, with a protractor and hold it up to the sky and figure out what speed things are moving at. And everybody can agree that the fastest moving object across the sky is the moon. Uh, and then, you know, the others in that order. Right. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing that they associated them in that way in one of the versions. Now, one of the, now the Gras version has this totally different way of doing it. The Gras version has um, Beth Gimeldoth, Kuff, Pei, Resh, Tav, in that order alphabetically. And then uh, they go Moon, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Saturn, Jupiter. That's the order that they go through. Um, now, that's based on some supplementary chapter where it will actually go over uh, some of the specifics of each letter and this is not how we do it but it kind of sheds in in hermetic ball you can do it however you want uh but this is this is how they were doing it and probably how a lot of uh jewish uh individuals do it um they the sephirate chapter four verse eight is the one that talks about the letter beth so this is the first one of them it says he made beth king over wind wisdom and he bound a crown to it and he combined one with another and with them he formed which is the for each letter will say that a different letter, but it'll say that phrase, and then it'll say, and with them he formed the moon in the universe, Sunday in the year, the right eye in the soul, and then it finishes each verse with male and female to kind of explain that it is receptive and projective, um, and then it goes through each one of them individually, and so that's that's one method of doing it, and I have seen people do it that way. Uh, that's not how we do it in specifically Hermetic Kabbalah, for a reason I'll talk about in a moment. Um, one of the major reasons is that that doesn't match up with the days of the week. So the days of the week are already associated with planets. It's weird for you to put Sunday and the moon together, especially considering the word Sunday means sun day. I mean, like, it's a really weird associate. And then there's other, you know, like the moon works good from Monday because it's literally the word moon and day put together, moon day. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on where the hermetics were like, what the hell are you guys doing? Why did you associate these two things together? And so they kind of like... They kind of like reshape the Kabbalah to be more in harmony with itself before they start slapping other ideas onto it, if that makes sense. Um, and like I said, a lot of those are supplementary chapters. I don't know that, you know, maybe that person didn't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years later that they started to associate those things. So then the third method of doing the double letters is the hermetic method that we use nowadays. And this is most likely done by Mathers. We're not sure. He might have learned it from an outside source, but it looks like it was Mathers' work because people prior to him are not doing it a whole lot in manuscripts that we have been able to find. People after him all seem to be doing it, and he's a very influential person. Uh, he seems to be the first one who publishes it. Now, something new might pop up, or maybe there's a manuscript I haven't heard of before, but I, as far as I have seen, he's the first to do it this way. He does them in the order... Uh, Beth with Mercury, Gimel with the Moon, Daleth with Venus, Kaf with Jupiter, uh, Pei with Mars, Resh with Sun, and Tav with uh, Saturn. And 
that's the method that if you go and you try to memorize and don't try to memorize it off this fucking episode that would be crazy to expect somebody to memorize it in your own time what I'm trying to do is like cast light into all the different chambers and why we do these kind of things and let you explore the you know temple on your own uh, we're just you know chucking glow sticks down the hallway so you can see where there are doors and where you might uh, find interesting information um, but he does it in that way and a lot of that is based on two things number one is chapter four verse one of the sefer Yetzirah says their foundation is wisdom wealth seed life dominance peace and grace and if you take those it's really easy to associate wisdom with mercury and seed with venus and dominance with mars it's really easy to associate some of them and then some of the others you just kind of have to like piece them in but i think there's a more interesting reason why he probably did this so he was uh really interested in associating specifically the 22 trumps of the tarot to the 22 paths in the closer tree of life and so you have uh these seven which are associated to planets and we just don't know which planets they are right so if you place them on the tree this is the seven that fall on paths that have uh planetary forces to them you have the magician the high priestess the empress the tower the sun the world and the wheel of fortune now some of those are really easy and obvious the sun is probably the sun right the wheel of fortune is Ju uh jupiter that makes sense it's a fortune type of planet the world makes a lot of sense for Saturn for two reasons. Number one, uh, out of all of these energies, the world is probably the densest. So it's the, it's the slowest, farthest kind of a concept. But then also because it's the very last letter of the alphabet. So it's that restrictive force that is manifest in the world that is farthest from the emanation of, you know, Kether, right? Um, the, the tower is a pretty easy one. The, the meaning of the tower has since time immemorial been you know this destructive force that's very mars-like and so that one plays out pretty well uh, so then you really just have the magician the high priestess and the empress well the magician is this this symbol of you know a magician he knows how the world works he can change things things are in flux because of him he kind of does take that hermes type role and so it makes sense to associate him with mercury because he kind of is that type of a character. So then you're left with the high priestess and the empress. The high priestess is symbols of the subconscious and symbols of, um, you know, the intuitive side of things. Which fits pretty well with the moon. And the empress, being the symbol of, like, mother nature, fits really well with Venus. And so these particular cards fitting in this particular order is probably one of the reasons why he associated them in this way. Because that helped to bring everything within line. Um, some other really interesting things um, is like the third the, the geometric value the third letter of the alphabet is the moon in this case um, the moon is often represented in a lot of occult and magical imagery as being the triple moon uh, the, the number three is often associated with you know moon like concepts uh, while not Kabbalistically the third sphere or anything like that, there's definitely some some triple moon concept that could easily be tied in there. Uh, Venus being associated with the number four. Four is Earth element. Earth element is very similar to Venus element in the way that it like produces life and gives birth to new things and 
is the bounty of the universe being manifest in your life. Uh, both of those are very similar energies, one on a planetary scale and one on more of a, an, an uh, elemental scale. So there's definitely some interesting numerological, uh, numer numerological, why can I never say that word? Numerological things that uh, take place by doing this arrangement. So I definitely think it's worth worth mentioning and worth credit. Um, okay, so now I've just, you know, explained that we do it and not how, because I offered five different methods on how to do it. So then the question becomes, how should you do it? I don't know. Um, experiment with it. Play with it. I have experimented with and found one of those methods to work really well for my type of work. If you're going to use this information to dissect ceremonial magic rituals, it makes sense to be what it, using the same symbol of ciphers that everyone else is using. So if you're like a Jewish-speaking individual, a Jewish community, and you're going to be using it for, like, you know, dissecting scripture, it makes a lot of sense to be using the method that gets described in, directly in a Sefer Yitzir or whatever interpretation of the tradition that you're learning. If you're using, like, uh, Crowley's magic, then it makes sense to use Mather's system because that's what system he's using, you know? Uh, so if you're, like, trying to dissect, I don't know, Holy Books of Thelema, for example, uh, it would make a lot of sense to use you know, Mather's version. Um, I'm a big fan of cross-educating, holding two things in your mind as true and both of them, even though they're conflicting. So I would argue, learn all three of them and maybe even come up with a fourth one that just, you know, fits your own perspective on it. Could make it a little difficult as you're, you know, doing stuff, but I don't know. It's really up to you. You know, do what they will. Okay, so the simple letters. So that's the double letters and why we associate them to things that are divided into seven and why we associate them with the days of the week and with the planets and those kind of things. The simple letters, um, chapter five, verse three of the Sefer Yetzir reads 12 elementals, HVZ, uh, CH, you know, Chet. It's its own letter. It's not two letters. I don't know how to read these out loud like that. Okay, I'm just going to list them. I'm going to list them this time. And then I'm just going to refer to them as the 12 elementals. So it's Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, Lamed, Nun, Samek, uh, Ayan, Zadi, and Kof. So those are the 12. Uh, it says their foundation is that he engraved them, he carved them, permuted them, weighed them, and transformed them. And with them he formed. And that's a really common, that's uh, like a reoccurring theme within, is to list off that he engraved them, carved them, permuted them, weighed them, and transformed them. And with them he formed. He's, they say that a lot in the Sefer Yitzhak. Uh, and with them he formed 12 constellations in the universe, 12 months in the year, and 12 directions in the soul, male and female. Um, so you can see kind of a similar concept, associating things which are derived by 12 to these 12 items. And in specific, 12 constellations in the 12 months of the year, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because that's where we get the zodiac, the 12 months of the year and the 12 uh, astrological things in the sky. Um... There's not as much confusion on these ones. <laughs> They're taken pretty cut and dry. One person makes a whole bunch of changes. <laughs> it's Crowley. Uh, you son of a bitch, I love you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the single letters. So the single letters associate alphabetically with the signs of the zodiac. Signs of the zodiac being Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, in that order. So those same letters going straight down the list. 
Um, there's not as much confusion and arguing um, amongst Jewish Kabbalah and Hermetic Kabbalah about that particular line. Until Crowley comes along and he swaps Hay and Zadi. Now he doesn't do the same type of a swap. So in, in laying out the tarot, yeah, I'll explain it in a second. He swaps Hay and Zadi. He swaps Aquarius and Aries. Um, he leaves the letters where they sit on the tree and just swaps those two, the, all of the meanings of those, all the hermetic meanings of those. He doesn't swap any of the uh, Jewish meanings of those. So the number still stays the same. The letter stays the same. The way it's pronounced stays the same. Uh, all those types of things. But uh, all of the esoteric things from the hermetic standpoint um, what particular energy it's working with, what colors are associated with it, what uh, magical weapons you might use when interacting with it, all those kind of things. Those are switching. So here's the reason why. So if you take the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and you, similar to how Kircher just went alphabetical and went Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, straight down the list, alphabetical list. If you do the same thing with the 22 trumps of the tarot, so you start off with the fool, then you go to the magician, then you go to the high priestess, or, I'm sorry, the empress. No, high priestess, then empress, then emperor. Yeah, you go straight down the list uh, until you get to the very end. very last one is Tav, the world, right? Now, um, it fits really, really well. It fits uncomfortably well. It is as if, and some people have surmised, that this is, in fact, what the tarot was based on. Now, it's hard to say, because early, early, early versions of the tarot don't all agree on what the trumps are. And then they do agree with what the trumps are, and then almost immediately afterward, the culture goes through this, like, Kabbalah revival, and everyone's obsessed with the Kabbalah. And so everyone makes this immediate connection. But, like, the oldest versions of the tarot, this is not the exact 22 trumps. In fact, not all decks had 22 trumps for a long period of time. But the one that's really, really popular when the Kabbalah revival happens uh, has 22, and they fit almost perfectly. For example, the lover's card depicts a naked man and a woman on them, right? And in the zodiac, which is the zodiac sign Gemini, which would fall right there, um, if you alphabetically took the single letters and went through and associated all of those, to uh, horoscope signs, you would get Gemini. So lover's card would be associated with Gemini. And the symbol of Gemini is two naked twins taken from Sumerian culture. It depicts a, man, a naked man and a naked woman. The devil card uh, would associate with Capricorn through similar fashion. Capricorn is the symbol of the goat from Sumerian culture. Uh, I think it was Enki, if I remember correctly off the top of my head. No, no, double check me on that one. I think it's Enki. Um, but the goat and the devil being a goat headed, you know, it's depicted on the card as Baphomet, which I would disagree is the devil, but you know, do whatever you're gonna do with it. Uh, but the devil card being the goat card <laughs> and Capricorn being the goat sign that fits up pretty well. Uh, another really good example is like the death card fits up with Scorpio. Scorpio is a scorpion. It's poisonous. So assembling, uh, uh taking a poisonous creature and associating with death is a pretty straightforward uh, thing. There's also some really interesting ones in the planetary correspondences. If you take 
those particular points. As we talked, this one's probably less interesting because I do think that Mathers put them in there on purpose. That he arranged the the planets to the tarot, not the tarot to the planets. Um, but still very interesting. Empress being the symbol of like Mother Nature gets associated to Venus, Fortune to Jupiter, the Sun card to Sun. You can see how all of those are pretty straightforward and interesting. And this this pattern of going through the tarot in uh, numerical order is, I mean, it's it's incredibly uh, similar, except for a change that needs to happen to match up the symbols. There's two cards that need to flip for them to line up really, really well. So if you were to just do it in alphabetical order, you would end up with an issue between the card strength and the card, let me look at it. I have to see it in front of me. The card strength and the card justice. Because they would justice would fall on Leo, which is the symbol of the lion, and uh, and strength, which is a woman depicted with a lion, would fall on the symbol of the scales, which is Libra. So it would make sense to flip those two symbols only in order to make every single horoscope sign match up with every single astrological sign perfectly. And this bothered the ever-living shit out of Crowley because you swapped the order of two things. They used to be a perfect circle. Now you swapped the order of two things to make them fit, and they should have fit. You know, those symbols do, in fact, make a, a certain um, harmony when you do that. But it makes it so that the holes, if you were to lay out those cards in astrological order just the horoscope cards, and then count the numbers on them, you end up with a twist in the circle that just twists around the hermit card. It just twists around Virgo, right? Uh, where those two are flipped. And so it bothered him for a long time. And he struggles back and forth through it with a lot of his writing. And eventually he comes up with the solution of going to the exact opposite side of the circle and swapping two of them in order to fit better. And now the swap that he makes is not terribly uh, awful. It's not the same type of swap either. We call that the Hey Saudi uh, switch. And it's swapping the symbols that are on Hey with the symbols that are, symbols that are on the lettered Saudi. And basically that would swap uh, the Emperor card and all of the associations of Aries over to Saudi instead of Hey. And the star card and, every, and Aquarius and everything that's over there on Saudi over to Hey. They call that the hate Saudi swap. Uh, swap, and when they do that, they take instead of just the tarot, they, f they f he flips everything that's on those two, and it's not a terrible way of doing it because uh, the Phoenician alphabet um, and the way that the Phoenician alphabet, each one of those was a word. The words that hey and Saudi are, uh, they don't fit as perfectly with as like. Leo being lion and justice being Libra being scale. They don't fit quite as elegantly, but there is some stuff where it's like, well, this one is closely related to like natural found glass. And that's often, you know, a bluish green color. And that associates really well to Aquarius energies and not so well to Aries energies. So there's some of those kinds of things. And a lot of people kind of struggle back and forth with whether you should use the hate Saudi switch or not. But it, that's what it does. It balances Mather's Teth Lamed switch of the tarot to balance out the other end of it so that the horoscopes are lined out very well. That's the only major switch that ends up happening there. Um, 
Okay. So we see why people associate all these different things with different different forces. Now I want to talk about associating those to the lines on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life because I really, really like the Ari arrangement. I use the Kurtzer arrangement in a lot of stuff because, as, as I was talking about, it makes sense to learn the, the tradition that's being presented to you so that you can dissect those works. But I also think that for study purposes, it's very interesting to look at the Ari arrangement, which is, in my opinion, a better representation of the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And here's why I say that. Remember how we talked about there are 12 lines connecting 10 spheres, or I'm sorry, 22 lines connecting 10 spheres. In order to make that arrangement, you end up with seven vertical lines, three horizontal lines, and 12 diagonal lines, which works really, really well to say the three horizontal lines are the mother letters, the seven vertical lines are the plants and the double letters, and the 12 diagonal lines are the horoscopes. It works very, very well. In fact, that's how Ari arranged them. So on... Instead of doing alphabetical down the list, he arranges them according to which group the letter falls in. So uh, across the three paths, you get Shin, Aleph, Mem on the three vertical lines, or three horizontal lines. Uh, Aleph being in the middle, Shin being at the top, and Mem being at the bottom, which falls in line with what we were talking about with the three elements and how they represent in the physical universe and the Ptolemaic uh, model of the universe being water and earth element falls to the bottom, air is in the middle, the breath deciding between them, and Shin being the fire of the sun, right? We talked about kind of that separation there. And that it, it is in that order on the Ari train. The seven uh, planetary forces, it plays out really, really well uh, because all of the straight up and down lines and many of them are associated. Uh, if you take, if you take um, Mather's planetary associations and Ari's tree, many of the paths are touching the planetary sphere of which planet they are. Not all of them, but almost all of them are touching in that way. And then that leaves 12 horizontal lines and all of them are laid out pretty well. So I think that, that that plays out really, really well. And it's worth study, if nothing else, uh, to kind of look into the, the potential there. Now, one thing I want to say is that it's not the only way to arrange something in a way which the horizontal lines are of import and can be read into in a deeper fashion. So just because the Ari arrangement gives Aleph, Mem, and Shin on those lines and in that order uh, that manifests in the universe doesn't necessarily mean that when you do it alphabetically that it's not also interesting. Because if you do it alphabetically, you end up with those three lines being the top line is the line for Venus, the bottom line is the line for Mars, and Leo is in the middle of those two. And what's interesting about that is today, in a modern era, the sign of Venus is the symbol we use for woman, for female. The sign of Mars is the symbol we use for male, and so one of them is lower and one of them is higher. And then in the middle is Leo. And Leo is the card associated or is associated with the, the lust card uh, in the Thoth deck, which is the, the card of strength. It depicts um, 
Well, it depicts a woman riding a beast. I won't get into a whole lot of information there, but it's the lust card. And so it kind of makes sense that you have this male and female energies being divided and connected by lust, the, the, the force drawing them together. And if you look at Crowley's work, there's a lot of information about uh, lust being a, a generative and creative force that's presented. Um, I would say that the planetary, the, the planets with the Jewish association of planets or Mather's association of the planets on the paths and which sphere they're connected to are both worth their, they weren't looking at. One of them is more geometrically perfect and the other one is more, um, I don't know, has just as many connected. They're interesting. I would say that the uh, Chaldean association of the planets, uh, the one that, um, well, like, for example, one really prominent writer that I really appreciate his work, um, and I, I love his work, but he uh, disagrees with me on this point, and people are always welcome to disagree with me. Um, he, he likes the Chaldean association with the uh, double letters, and the specifically the Ari tree doesn't, it, it doesn't play well with, with that uh, in particular. It um, only one thing is touching one of its forces, and it you could very easily rearrange the three to have none touching. Another reason, the last reason that I'm going to list as to why I think the RE arrangement is worth um, investigation, even though it's not hermetic, uh, it's not the hermetic way of doing it, is that there's this system often used in initiatory rites similar to the Golden Dawn where they're rising up the tree from Malkuth and hitting each one of the spheres as they go. And there's almost a path for every single jump. So you start at Malkuth and move to Yesod. You ride the line of Tav in order to do that. And then you ride from Yesod to Hod, Hod to Netzah, then Tifereth, Gabura. And so you're just going, you know, the number 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You get the idea. Right? And, uh, there's this great mystery that uh, is presented to the initiate um, as they're passing from the fourth to the third path. The third path being the first of the what's called the supernal triad, the everything beyond the veil. And um, there's no path that connects Hesed to Bina. Unless you use the Ari arrangement. If you use the Ari arrangement, then there is a path that goes from there to there, and it makes it a little bit, in my opinion, it makes a little bit more sense to directly follow a path. So it just depends on, a, I would say they're both worth uh, studying. Um, one is used more in hermetic stuff. So it kind of gives you some ideas as to some things that you might potentially look at as far as that goes. Um. So I feel like we've painted a really complicated picture <laughs> that may or may not be useful in audio format. I really hope that it at least gives people a lot of interesting room to study and to uh, see. The thing I wanted to demonstrate most is that there's a reason why we associate these things with these things. It's not like uh, we're just randomly throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. You know, it very much was based on the linguistics of the language and uh, traditions which go back, you know, thousands of years. Um, so I wanted to kind of show, like, how does the Kabbalistic tree actually get used? And 
a lot of it is we associate these different forces with these different categories. And then if you're invoking an energy, you could go look at anything which is in that category. You could look at perfumes and numbers and colors and shapes and animals and birds and gods and goddesses and feasibly have an entire ritual which is formulated around these types of things or write entire um, mythologies which are circulated around these types of ideas. And I already kind of read a little bit in 777 where Crowley, oh, I'm sorry, it's not in 777, it's Liber O. And Liber O et Mena, Liber O vel et Mena et Sagitta, whatever. Libra. Um, I'm going to read that quote again because I think it paints the next picture pretty clearly. Give me just a second to find that quote. Like I said, it's my favorite quote. I use it too much, really. It's like I'm hounding it. So in Liber Ovelt, Manus at Sagita, Crowley states, uh, the planet corresponding is Mercury, it's number eight, it's linear figures, the octagon and octogram. Its colors orange for Mercury is the sphere of sphere of Hode, number eight. You would then prepare your place of working accordingly. In an orange circle, you'd draw an eight-pointed star of yellow whose points you would place eight lamps. And then he goes on, to say and so on we could not here it is and so on we cannot uh, enter into length all the necessary preparations and the student will find them fully set forth in the proper books since the student is a man surrounded by material objects if it be his wish to master one particular idea he must make every material object around him directly suggest that idea thus in the ritual quoted, if his glance fall upon the lights, their number suggests mercury, he smells perfume, again, mercury is brought to his mind. In other words, the whole magical apparatus and ritual is a complex system of pneumatics. And I think that's a really, really good uh, job at illustrating how the Kabbalah connects will be used in ritual context. So we see examples of this in things like the tarot, uh, especially tarot that was um, created after Mathers. Uh, so... One of the things that members of the Golden Dawn would do is make their own tarot deck, and some of the individuals chose to publish those decks. Um, one of the individuals who published his deck was um, A.E. Waite. Yeah, they call it the Waite Rider deck because Rider is the publisher, and A.E. Waite was the uh, individual who dictated which symbols would go onto it. Um, but there was a there was a painter who was also involved in the project, and so a lot of times I like to give credit where credits to. So a lot of times you will hear this uh, described as the Waite Smith deck because Pamela Coleman Smith was the artist who drew the depictions while A.E. Waite was the one who um, had given description of what he believed each card should be depicted as. And, and that Rider deck is where most other things get based. Now, he makes a change in here. So, wait, I believe Pamela was also, yeah, I believe Pamela Smith was also part of the AA, or not the AA, the uh, Golden Dawn. Um, but he, he learned directly from Mathers. And um, one of the things he does that throws off a lot of later decks is that he changes the number which is associated with to match the progression that Mathers had set out on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. So the strength card, or I'm sorry, it's 
yeah, the strength card and justice card are flipped, but it's not just that they're flipped. He also renumbers them in order to be more in line. So you will sometimes see, if you set up all your tarot trumps in order with the numbers matching at the top, you'll sometimes see them in the traditional order. You'll sometimes see them in the post-Golden Dawn order. Um, another deck that uh, is Kabbalistically arranged, according to the teachings of the Golden Dawn, is the Thoth deck that was um, done by um, Alistair Crowley similar to how A.E. Waite had dictated the symbols to an artist. Um, it is Alistair Crowley and Lady, uh, Lady Freda Harris. Um, I am a really big fan of Freda Harris's uh, artwork. She did an incredible job adding her own flavor and context to her art style. As I understand, she was one of the people that has the... Um, the, the brain uniqueness, I don't know, it's not really a disability. I guess it could be a disability under certain circumstances. She had uh, synesthesia, where um, certain ideas blend with other ideas. So, like, she could, uh, she had, like, visual, um, visual effects from listening to music, or she could uh, associate, uh, like, certain like sounds with certain colors, those kind of things. There's like an overlap in the way that they perceive the world, um, which works really, really good for magic. And I bet it was probably very um, disruptive if, if she wasn't an artist. She, she happened to be a, a very talented artist. And her artwork has a strange like warpingness. Uh, it's really awesome to read through, to look at the pictures and then read through um the book that Crowley wrote to go along with it, which is called the Book of Thoth. Uh, the Book of Thoth talks about each individual painting and what the intention was. And a lot of times you'd be like, oh, I didn't realize that was a cup. And you, instead of viewing it from the top, you're viewing it from the... Oh, she, she has this like weird warping effect. She also does a lot of really cool things with like geometry. Um, the Thoth deck is probably one of the best examples of Kabbalistic associations making their way into a tarot deck. Because they even go as far as to say, like, the colors that are associated with this particular path are the only colors or most of the colors that are used on this particular card. So there's, like, a lot of those kind of things going on where um, little symbols will be thrown in the background or uh, sometimes even just in the foreground. The colors are all reference these kind of things. I think it's, it's fantastic. So uh, one of the ways that you can use this general information is by taking a look at the hermetic information that's in... The tarot. Another example is the Book of Lies. So Crowley wrote the Book of Lies. It's a series of poems. The chapters, they're not quite chapters because they're just like single page. Uh, most of them are single page uh, poems. Um, there's a couple of rituals that are thrown in there as well, and some of them are more than one page. But um, he writes out the poem itself, and then he writes out a page of notes on the Kabbalistic association of the things that are in play. And I remember reading this very, very early on, probably too early on, uh, at being introduced to Crowley's work, uh, and it being a source of inspiration for me because I had very little Kabbalistic understanding, so I didn't know what he was talking about a lot of times, so that was very exciting to me because I was like, oh my God, there's this complex system of numbers and symbols and colors and all these things, and I'm not aware of most of them. So I took a lot of inspiration. If, if you're one of the people that loves to be blown out of uh, your element, uh, then it's awesome. <laughs> if you don't, then it's probably a little bit dense, but I mean, he, he explains it all. He sits down with each symbol 
and explains like this word relates to this symbol because of this number and because of this. So Book of Lies is a fantastic one for going through Kabbalistic associations and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of the Golden Dawn rituals, Israel Gardi's work. Israel Gardi wrote several books in the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Some of my favorites are Garden of Pomegranates and The Middle Pillar. Both of those are um, relating pretty pretty extensively in there. But even the Golden Dawn's like initiation rituals a lot of times, which have been published in modern era, of course, by regarding, um, where they will, uh, in the initiation ritual, talk about, see how you're standing here in the temple? Look off to this side. Do you see how we have this sign over here on the wall? That is because this is this path, and you are now standing on this spot on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And they, they kind of, you know, walk you through a lot of it. Uh, lesser ritual, or yeah, lesser ritual. The pentagram has heavy overtones of Kabbalah in both the Kabbalistic cross and in the commentary that ends up in Liber O. So in Liber O, um, Crowley talks a lot about how to adapt the ritual into your own other rituals for invoking or banishing specific elements and how to make entire ceremonies based on the Kabbalistic associations. Um, and he also writes a lot of uh, stuff that are based on that format. And you can kind of see how he's using this system in order to adapt the first example that comes to mind is uh, he adapts Lesser Ritual of Pentagram into the Star Ruby. Um, and they're very obviously in the same format, but he uses some of this uh, ability to jump from one symbol to another symbol in order to lay out the ritual in a more Thelemic sense as opposed to being in a more Judaic sense. So uh, there's a lot of those types of rituals that can be dissected in this way. And it's, I think, a really, really strong benefit to the individual to be aware of that there's also some really obvious examples in rituals that are written by Crowley that are um, not as they're clearly referencing Kabbalistic stuff but they're not written in the format of something else. well it's not that it's not written in any format it's not written in a format that was originally ceremonial magic in that way um, the Gnostic Mass which you can make a strong argument that it's based on Catholic Mass and some other stuff. Uh, but there's some very obvious Kabbalistic uh, things, as well as some really well-hidden ones. I'll point out the two obvious ones, and then you can go about your own personal study to discover some of the more hidden ones. And they're pretty prevalent. Um, the obvious ones that I note are on the left and the right-hand side of the altar are these two pillars, the black and the white pillars, which represent the pillar of severity and the pillar of mercy on the Kabbalistic tree of life, being those two columns on the left-hand right side that have three Kabbalistic spheres on them. Um, there's a lot of association with the pillars, and uh, that shows up also in like Masonic stuff with the, the pillars of uh, Boaz and Jenkin, um, the black and white pillars in the Temple of Solomon, and in a lot of other places too. So those pillars are references to the Kabbalistic tree. And then also the layout of the center of the temple um, is the uh, four spheres if you start at Malkuth and raise up to Kether. Um, the temple's laid out geometrically to that effect. So the tomb uh, where the priest uh, shows up uh, relating to Malkuth. Um, the next one up is where the feminine energies reside, which is on Yasod, which is the sphere where the moon is, and that's where you get the water and salt. And then uh, the next 
path towards the super altar is the uh, altar with the fire and uh, air element stuff. And that's the solar position. That's also where the deacon stands. He being, uh, for most of the ritual, the deacon being a like a solar uh, energy individual um, dressed in yellow and, you know, wielding those types of things. Uh, he stands at the, at the position of Tifereth. And then the super altar being Kether. And the rest of the Spernal Triad as well, um, but Kether in specific. And um, the other one that I'll point out is in incredibly obvious if you look at the Weight Rider deck with the colors that the High Priestess card and the um, Empress card and the associations of those two cards uh, making up a lot of the symbolism that gets drawn into the uh, priestess during the during the ritual. So um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff too. I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about the Gnostic Mass. Um, maybe another time we'll actually do an episode on it. Although that one I think might leave up to individuals to have their own personal experiences with it because I've found that type of study to benefit me very well and I'd like to benefit others. Um, okay, so the altars, the pillars priestess those kinds of things and if you've ever seen a mass um it, it is very interesting to look at that particular tarot deck and um the layout of the characters and stuff like that it can be really cool um another way that you might do this to use cabalistic information for various purposes is uh to look at like all of the categories that relate to a single path and how that might contrast all of the things that are in another category in order to build up a relationship and an understanding of a specific like planet, for example. Uh, so I'm going to use the examples of Mars and Venus. This applies across the entire board, but Mars and Venus are ones that I think a lot of people are really familiar with. So those are the two that I'm going to use in this, this case. Uh, so some of the things listed in these categories for mars is going to be things like the color scarlet a sword incense of pepper and pungent odors um, the body part of the muscular system the animals the horse the bear and the wolf and works of wrath and vengeance so the horse the bear and the wolf the war horses uh bears are often considered to be big strong things wolves are heavily associated with warfare and uh like for example alexander the great uh, claims that he figured out the tactic of flanking by observing wolves. And then there's also some associations with like certain gods um, in Greek uh, myth, as well as some others, but in particular Greek myth with these three, uh, where like wolves are associated with a specific deity and that deity rules over um, those kind of things. Um, with Venus, instead of scarlet, you get the color emerald green. Well, that kind of makes sense. Growth and uh, plant life and those kind of things. Um, incense of sandalwood and voluptuous odors. Um, the body part of the genitals being the uh, productive and um, ecstasy of mankind. Um, animals being the dove and the swan. Um, works of love filters and those types of things. So you can see how it, you can you can get a really wide understanding of an energy by just reading through and studying one particular element on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and 
all the things that are associated with it. And you might choose to like write a ritual in that way where like, you know, you wear green and burn incense of sandalwood and maybe, I don't know, uh, there's pictures of doves and swans around and like you see how you can like build entire rituals around that kind of concept. But even just studying these things can really help to have comprehension of these kind of things. Once you've done that, um, another thing that you can do with Kabbalistic Tree of Life is interpretation of dreams and visions. So if you have some method that you like to use in order to induce uh, vision experiences or lucid dreams or whatever the experience is, or maybe just interpreting your dreams that you were not lucid in uh, at a later date for you know prophetic reasons or those kind of things, um, you could use a lot of the colors and symbols that are you know given to you. So if you remember that you were I don't know, in a room of red and carrying a sword and the smell of pepper was in the air, you could be like, oh, there's some Mars energy shit going on in this fucking dream. And that might give you a little bit more information as to an interpretation. Um, the second to last one that I want to bring up is communicating with spirits or entities. So if you have uh, ever had an experience with scrying or uh, summoning or any of those kind of things, evocations, uh, where you successfully ended up in contact with some otherworldly intelligence or non-corporeal intelligence. Uh, often, from my experiences, they have not been English speakers. <laughs> they don't uh, just give you, if you ask a direct question, you might get a direct response every single time. And it might be, and I would honestly suggest that uh, you do ask questions more than once and make sure that the answers that you're getting are consistent. And it's not, you're not just getting nonsense from your own subconscious that's just giving you, you know, that you're actually getting like uh, clear responses and um, dissecting the images and colors and sensations that they impart by communicating via symbol can easily be dissected via this symbol or this system. It works very well. Uh, so that's a potential. And the last one that I wanted to give as an example of how this might be used is something called the analysis of the keyword, which is part of the lesser ritual of the hexagram and also part of the, the Golden Dawn's curriculum, which lesser ritual of the hexagram was written by the Golden Dawn. Um, but it, uh, in it, they, they kind of go over a Kabbalistic system of analysis. And I think it's really interesting to look at it in this way. Uh, so it starts off in Re, Yod, Nun, Resh, Yod, uh, Virgo, Isis, Mighty Mother, Scorpio, Apophis, Destroyer, Soul, Osiris, Slain, and Risen. Isis, Apophis, Osiris, Iao, um, the sign of Isis in mourning, the sign of uh, Osiris, Risen, the sign of, or the sign of Apophis and of Typhon, the sign of Osiris, Risen, LVX, the Light of the Cross. And so... Um, this is a perfect, just written down example of how uh, they used to take words, ideas, phrases of power, and then uh, Kabbalistically analyze some of the meaning out of it, tease out other things. And so let's break it down a little bit on exactly what they just, what they just did. So uh, they say Inri, or they say I-N-R-I, one of the two which is um, the first letter of each word in Latin that was written over Christ on the cross, which is Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judorium, which means um, Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
And uh, so if you take each letter off the beginning, J and I during that time period, just like we were talking about other letters, very similar, uh, one single letter. So it would be written I-N-R-I, which gives you the word inri, the word of power, often gets used in uh, Christian magic and uh, analyzation of scripture and all sorts of stuff. So they start off with that, inri. And then they change those letters to their equivalents within the Hebrew alphabet. They say uh, inri. Yod Nun Resh Yod. So the letter I uh, being Yod, the letter N being Nun, the letter Resh being R, and the letter I being Yod again. And they break down each one of those symbols. Um, Virgo. So Yod is equal to Virgo, if you look on the paths. So Virgo, and then they explain what Virgo is. Isis, the goddess Isis. Uh, and then uh, Nun being Scorpio. And then they explain what Scorpio is. Scorpio, the destroyer. And then, which associated with death card. Those kind of interesting details. And then uh, Resh being the symbol that gets associated with the sun. So they say um, soul being sun. Uh, Osiris, slain and risen. So then they, they associate those Hebrew letters, Kabbalistically, over to gods that associate with those same paths. Uh, and then they go through these, these postures uh, called the signs of the grades um, that were associated with those particular uh, gods and the story that uh, evolves from their mythology, uh, which is Isis, um, Osiris, and Apophis, Apep, or Seth. Um, in the story, what happens is Osiris is, you know, the sun god, and he is slain by his brother Seth, or Apophis, or Apep, depending on the tradition that it's being looked at under, um, who then celebrates his, his death. Bad guy won. He's all triumphant. And then in the original myth, uh, modernly we would kind of consider this to be a little bit vulgar, but in the context of that religion, it was, it was like this, this great powerful thing where they were saying like, you know, look, this is the regenerative force and where life comes from. Um, so in the myth, Isis uh, goes to the corpse of Osiris and um, masturbates his corpse in order to get semen and impregnates herself with the semen and then gives birth to a new sun god who is Horus. And so that's that idea of uh, soul, Osiris, the sun, being slain in the form of Osiris and then rising again as Horus in the next generation of the sun. Uh, and some people interpret that myth to be kind of uh, tied into these ideas of like the sun is born in the east, travels over to the west, sinks down and dies, and then is reborn in the east every single day uh, and night. Um, some people attribute it more to the the story of like, you know, Isis and the regenerative property of generation unto generation, uh, new life will be born and can take the mantle of the last generation. Uh, king who has died um in a lot of ritual magic we kind of consider them to be one and the same you know it's one process one myth um often called the eo formula for the reason that now the analysis the keyword continues so they say um isis apophis osiris so they say these are the three gods that were referenced there in virgo scorpio and the sun uh, virgo is the weird one Isis is not a terrible goddess for Virgo. Um, Virgo plays the character of the maiden or the virgin. Um, 
it's not a it's not a terrible character to go there but if we were to just look at like the tables in 777 for example that wouldn't necessarily be the egyptian deity that you would put there but it does fit really really well within this analysis so then they go uh eao which is another uh word of power taken from greek being like the creative unified god kind of thing um and then um then they go through the grade signs of each of those characters within the myth and so the sign of Osiris or the sign of Isis in mourning is you're holding your arms in a big L one arm is up one arm is out to the side and it makes a big L sign and she turns her head and she's like weeping this is taken from like um, you know Egyptian hieroglyphic artwork of the mythology uh, and then there are the sign that I, uh, Osiris is often depicted in is with his arms crossed over his chest. And so uh, it is uh, Osiris risen. And then the sign of Apophis is with him with his arms up in the air. I did those out of order again. I don't know why I keep doing that. It's probably because I'm not doing ritual right now. I'm just like talking about it. So I, I don't know. I fucked it up. I done fucked it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, so Apophis, who also gets related to the Greek Typhon, um, is, you know, standing on his tippy toes with his hands up in the air and a big V, you know, praising that he has succeeded. And then Osiris risen in the form of Horus, uh, with his arms crossed. Um, so if you take the, the position of the arms in the one stance where it says L and the positions of the big V with his arms straight up in the air, and the positions of the arms crossed over the chest in the giant X, then you get LVX, which is Latin for light. It's pronounced lux or lux, depending on the pronunciation. We don't know the perfect pronunciations for Latin. It's a dead language, but you get the idea. Uh, and then they relate light back to the original starting point of the light of the cross being in re, connected to the concept of Christ. So... Um, so yeah, I think that that does an incredibly good job at showing how you might start with one word of power or import or something, make a Kabbalistic jump via category into something else, make another Kabbalistic jump into category into some other thing, then make a jump into mythology via those symbols that you got from the Kabbalistic associations, and then continue that process until you make your way all the way back around um, I think that that paints a really good picture of Kabbalistic analysis. And um, so if anybody wants to look at that, it's analysis, the keyword, and it is in the Lesser Ritual Hexagram as well as some Golden Dawn documents which have survived. So, um, yeah, I think that's all that I would like to say about the Kabbalistic tree, except to say that it is a complex enough topic that you will never understand all of it, nor will I. And I constantly find myself going back to this source of all this information and thinking to myself, man, I, why did I never see that? Which is one of the reasons why it took me a really long time to put an episode together because I was, I, and I still am, constantly learning more about it and thinking, wow, there's a lot really to this. And um, I don't expect that experience to end ever. So be prepared for, I don't know, be prepared for it to constantly unfold and for there always to be people around you that have more information 
So, you know, be open to that information. And I think that it's uh, a great way to add depth to your rituals in a really interesting way. So good luck, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.